Hey everyone, Mikey Hem here. The following episode is actually a combination of two recording sessions I did with our guest from the Rootin' for Lenin YouTube channel, our friend and comrade who emigrated to the U.S. from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia is not a country I'm familiar with or studied on, but our guest certainly is. And personally, I really enjoyed listening to him explain these things in a conversational way, and so I hope you all find it as interesting and informative as I did. And with that, both of these episodes don't have much of a strict narrative structure, so if you would like to familiarize yourself further with the Ethiopian war with the TPLF, in the episode caption are several links to YouTube videos and articles that give brief overviews and chronological explanations. These episodes will serve as a component to those articles and help to fill in all the gaps in an easy-to-understand way. As always, thank you for listening, comrades. Oh, man, it's so hard to, like, bring up Ethiopian shit because um, there's this lady, her name's Hermela Ragawi, and mm-hmm. she works with, like, the PSL people, like Breakthrough. And mm. she has this sanitized, like, lib, populist fucking take, and I hate it mm-hmm. amongst us. So, well, that's actually... it's weird. What's up? That's actually something I thought we would address when we get started, is that, like, I found that one video I put in the notes. I don't know if you happen to watch it, but it was just, like, one of the first videos I found on YouTube that tries to explain the whole situation in Ethiopia in, like, recent events, but then also with some background, like, historical stuff that goes back a few decades. Um, actually, it goes back a little longer than that, but... The point yeah. is that at one point they talk about the TPLF or they talk about like whatever um, socialist government was ruling there for however long. A short name for them is Wayani. It's kind of like how we call like the monarchists who fought the Bolsheviks the whites. Mm-hmm. Wayani means revolution in Tigray, but most Ethiopians it's kind of like a, it's an insult. So they, so they don't like Tigray then? Okay, I gotcha. It's not the um, only Tigray, it's... They don't like the ideology that the TPLF and Wayane have because it's like it's basically a one-sum game where one ethnic nationalism is tolerated over the rest, and then the mm. others below it are kind of like these collaborationist elements, kind of like how you know, like during segregation, there wasn't really that much of segregation like imposed upon other ethnic groups, and then that kind of shaped the reaction that you see in communities, like in the United States, for example. Okay. You know, Oh, but what I was getting at with that video is that it's like a very liberal framing of like what was going on because they say that like the party was authoritarian and didn't allow any dissent or whatever. And I'm like, that's literally what they say about every socialist country, every government in every socialist country ever. That they, so I don't know. Yeah. Are you talking about the Workers' Party of Ethiopia? Well, let me just take a look at the notes here just so I know that I'm saying the right thing. Hold on. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, was Breakthrough yeah. this place to read about Ethiopia? Because I know they're one of the few leftists that are trying to explain the situation in Ethiopia. And I will say that they're one of the few people that point out, like, atrocities against the Mahadas from a non-reactionary standpoint. And I kind of, yeah. like, really applaud them for it. But I will say, like, Hermela, she kind of poisoned the well. I mean, remember, she comes from the Young Turks. Like, that's, she's one of those, I'm a liberal and now I'm a leftist type of person. So, um, no, I don't think, did I put the, uh, the break, what is it, breaking points you said? Breaking breakthrough news. There, oh, okay. it's run by Eugene per year. The guy, the PSL guy. What it says in this YouTube video, they say right up until the seventies, Ethiopia was a, an empire ruled by an emperor. After the fall of the empire, and years of civil war and communist dictatorship under Mengistu, Eritrea declared independence, and the TPLF went on to rule Ethiopia with the EPRDF for almost thirty years. And they, yeah, they make it just sound like a dictatorship or whatever. But that's like what they say about Cuba, DPRK, China, like every socialist country. So I don't know if you want. To- weigh in on that when we talk about it but yeah is this from rt right 
There's an article from RT, but no, that's where it says transcript of video. That's what I was reading from. And it's that YouTube video link right above that. If we want to watch that during the episode, if we want to just talk about any of those points, we can. All right. Yeah. I mean, my phone, I'm talking to you from my phone. I wish I had my Oh, okay. But, um, I didn't realize. Yeah. yeah. These are really nice notes. It's like you wrote a whole essay. Well, no, I mean, I really just copy and pasted a bunch of stuff from articles. And it's just to give us a jumping off point, because what I'm hoping is that you're just naturally kind of familiar with it. And you can just expand on some of these talking points and, you know, fill it in for our listeners. Because I, I usually prefer like a, a layman's explanation just in somebody's own words rather than like reading from stuff. But I can do that as a backup, you know. Yeah. See, because one thing, even uh, if you know who Comrade Hakeem is, he's an ML YouTuber. Yeah. He makes the same mistake as a lot of people like. I was like on a little discussion on YouTube, me and a couple of Ethiopian comrades, we made a video, the one and a half hour video discussion on how like he didn't understand Ethiopia. And he was mm-hmm. like racing liberal talking points about the, the Dirk, which the Dirk, it's kind of, it means committee the same way that Soviet means like council in Russian. Like that's where okay. we took our homage from. But um, what's it called? The Dirk, they succeeded in like, they won a UN prize for just literacy alone and I'm raising the literacy from like 4% to um, 70%. The strongest economy under Ethiopia, even though like the DPRK was under massive siege, mm-hmm. it had like the strongest growth rate and the lowest inflation rate. We had double digit negative inflation under the dirt, even after the famous, you know, 1984 famine, which mm-hmm. a lot of people uh, remember, I guess you could say. I mean, that seems to be what people think about in America, at least, of. Ethiopia, but any African country is just they they assume that they're just poor countries rife with, you know, poverty and hunger and, you know, no, you're right. And is the Dirk because of the whole we are the world and everything. It was like the biggest bad PR moment for Ethiopia. But there's a documentary called Beyond Famine in Ethiopia on YouTube where the U.S. government actively emits it like the TPLF and the Eritreans deliberately elongated the famine because they would murder public employees trying to bring food like relief workers from the government trying to right. feed people. And they would kill them, take their trucks, and then burn the food. They wouldn't even keep it. They'd just burn it yeah. to exacerbate the situation. And plus, if you know another African leader, Gafar Narimi of Sudan, he gave shelter to them. So in actuality, we could never actually like wipe them out, the terrorists. We had to go to war with Sudan. And then let's, let's remember that Sudan is the little uh, munchkin minion of egypt so you would have to fight the second largest recipient of u.s military aid and fight probably one of the largest military powers in africa at that time being sudan which would have yeah. been a death sentence for the dirt you know and then you had the sino-soviet split in china they supported the eritreans and the Tigrayans. Hmm. Mm-hmm. and when the soviet union broke ties with sudan sudan would receive american and chinese military support because they saw it as a bulwark against ethiopia and as a result, a lot of those weapons that the Chinese and Americans gave to Sudan, it would trickle down to the TPLF and the Eritreans. And a lot of people kind of forget about that. I mean, even Asaya Soforki, he's the leader of Eritrea right now. He was trained in China um, under, the, um, under Mao um, in the 60s against the monarchy because they saw at one point, I don't deny it, the Eritreans at one time were the progressive movement for Ethiopia at that time because everything else was reactionary. Um, the closest thing you had to an opposition under the monarchy was just other rightist monarchs, rightist like uh, lords that wanted to take over Selassie. But in 1960, we had a coup led by Jermaine and Mangustu Noai, and they were leftists. 
within the monarchy, like social democrats. Mm-hmm. And they tried to change the monarchy. And it wasn't even the monarchy or the CIA or the elites bringing it back. It was low-level uh, landlords. They were angry at Germain and Mangustu trying to build illiteracy rates and build, you know, as Parenti emphasized, you know, in his famous speech, literacy is very important. You know, Ethiopia under the monarchy, our literacy rate was like 2%. Like, it, that's how down bad Ethiopia was back then. And Solace, what pissed off a lot of people is that he would have these big birthday parties. And what, in 19, uh, uh, let me, in fact, let me finish about the coup. I'm like zigzagging here. Hi everybody, welcome back to the Turn Up This Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight, I guess it's Christian, he, him, from the Rootin' for Lenin YouTube channel. How are you doing, Christian? What's up, boss? So, um, we're going to talk about Ethiopia tonight. So if you'd like, go ahead and tell our listeners where to find all your relevant uh, social media accounts. And then also just sort of explain like your background on Ethiopia and how you uh, know so much about it. Because talking to you before we actually started the, the episode, I can tell that you obviously do. So if you want to just uh, explain your background on Ethiopia. Okay, uh, I'm Rootin. My YouTube channel is Rootin, R-O-O-T-I-N without the G, and then F-O-R for four, and then Lenin, and then M-K, and then two, but not the number two, just capitalized lettered I's, like okay. Roman numerals. But Because my main channel was like my main uh, Google, like it was my main YouTube channel was my personal Google account, and when I made my YouTube name, all my Gmail contacts showed Rootin for Lenin. Yeah. So it looked very weird on work and school. I looked like, I was like, oh, who, who is this kid? You know, and they see yeah. a big <laughs> Lenin, uh, you know, profile pic. It's not fun. I'll tell you yeah, that yeah. much. Yeah, that has its own problems. I mean, it's on YouTube. Like, YouTube is like, you can explain how someone's dumb. Like, making these, and uh, you always see that in the long-winded tweets where it's like, in, in parentheses, like, one out of four. Right. One fourth, like yeah, it's like I'm not doing that. I'm not doing. It. I'm gonna make a video. It's gonna be maybe five, seven minutes long, and then I'm gonna say my piece. I imagine that's what Marx and Engels and all those people would have been doing as well if they had social media back then. Yeah, and plus, I don't care if I'm not verified. Blue check, no check. But anyway, so that's your YouTube channel. Yeah. All right, so you're on YouTube, but then yeah, like I said, give our listeners a little bit of um, background on yourself and how you know so much about Ethiopia. Because like I said, we were talking about it beforehand, and you definitely know a lot. So how do you? Uh, what was your area of study? I guess. Um, well, I'm Ethiopian. Um, that's one thing, and I lived there for about three years, and it radicalized me. I actually used to be like a social democrat before I came to Ethiopia, but I only was a social democrat in terms of the global south because I know from. Pankara's example, like, you're going to get destroyed if you try to practice some form of Marxism-Leninism, or you're going to be under siege and you're going to have to make concessions like Vietnam. So for me, I was a Marxist-Leninist, like, at heart, but, like, in practice, I was a Satyam. And then when I went to Ethiopia, I went to the furthest left you could possibly think of, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I just don't... I guess you could say I grew up out of uh, liberalism and of social democracy, you know? which I always considered as 
liberalism's response to uh, Mar- to Marxism. Yeah, I can see that. Well, so you bring up the dirt. Could you explain what that is? Because I was going to start off with like more recent events, but maybe if you could give some background on that, and then maybe we can move into recent events. All right, awesome. Because it is tied to recent events. It's similar to how in Russia the word Soviet means council or committee. So when the when the socialist officers led their revolution and called the government the Derg, it was paying homage to the revolution of 1917. But they didn't call themselves... At first, they wanted to call themselves the Ethiopian Soviet, but then there were disagreements, and then the Derg, so it was more nationalistic, and it was more localized. It was built on the national conditions of the country. And uh, do you want... Was there something else you wanted to ask about the Derg? No, I guess just a... So you say, I guess, a socialist experiment that didn't pan out as well as we would have liked, because you compared it to Pol Pot, and you said that most people still don't even defend it even as much as they would Pol Pot. No, 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 no. I'm saying, no, 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 not, not like that. Not like that. What I mean is, like, people who defend the Derg, they're honest about the mistakes and shortcomings of the Derg. Okay. Because you have to remember, the Derg was founded by mostly soldiers in their mid-30s and late 20s. It was a young, literally a young young revolution, both in leadership and in, in uh, spirit. And one also has to remember, you know, Ethiopia was the last feudalist absolute monarchy in the world at that time. Like the Shah of Iran, he at least modernized his country. Same thing with the Kingdom of Vietnam and the Kingdom of Laos. Ethiopia, on the other hand, we never modernized. 2% was literate. There was no industrialization. And most, most uh, food came from subsistence farming. And about 90 landowners owned 90% of the arable land in the country. Jesus. You know, like as Lenin said, you know, capitalism kind of liberated people from feudalism because it gave, although a new form of extraction, it also gave some form of mobility for the worker in comparison to feudalism. You know, how it's a step up and how it, it leads to the process of socialism. Um, in Ethiopia, we never had that. So when the revolution happened, basically... We had an 1848 and a 1917 happening at the same time. Mm. You know, one, we had to address the national question. And Ethiopia, maybe, I don't know if you read, is a multi-ethnic country. Some ethnic groups are marginalized. And we were also a country, just like in Europe, like within Germany and Italy, we used to at one point be just a large area of different empires and sultanites. No, different Mm. kingdoms and different sultanites, Muslim kingdoms. You know, and then at one point in the 1840s, Tedros unites the country into one country. And we, there wasn't an address of Ethiopia as the nation state. That was never addressed at all. And the Derg did what it could with what we, ML Marxist Leninists, call socialist patriotism. We praise because we condemn the reactionary elements of the past, if that makes any sense. Okay. And that was a hard pill to swallow for some Ethiopians because maybe some tribes, you know, that might not be good enough. Maybe they need to address their material conditions under the, the Ethiopian Empire. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there were competing interests in the revolution that wanted ethno-nationalism, separatism, etc. And they wanted it almost psychopathically, almost in the same, um, I guess you could say, goal to destroy Ethiopia as a country. Like they would practically, in a way, sacrifice the Ethiopian nation-state in the name of, like, entertaining their na- ethno-nationalist dream. And 
Some groups failed more than others. Some were more successful because we see the nation of Eritrea, you know, it exists today. Whereas others, they actually embrace the dirt. Like one group is the Afar. They were a sultanate that Ethiopia embraced. Not embraced, but it conquered and embraced through war. And what happened was when the dirt came to power, they said, you know, your material experience is unique. You have the right to self-determine. We respect that. So the Afars, their region of Asab became the autonomous region where the sultans, although mm -hmm. their land was redistributed, they were given political representation and their authority was equalized by a, a kabele, which is a workers' council. And then the kabeles in a form of democratic centralism would send their representatives and then they would make decisions with the sultans on equal footing. And that worked. And to this day, Afar people along with Amharas, where a half of my ancestry comes from, I'm half Amhara, half Grage. For Afars, they're the second largest Ethiopianist, uh, they have the second largest Ethiopianist uh, opinion or take mm -hmm. uh, compared to Amharas, who are probably the most hardline pan-Ethiopianists. And um, the Derg, what they also did was land distribution. And they used what is known as a kabele, which I mentioned earlier, which it's built on democratic centralism, but it takes the material conditions of Ethiopia, which was a village, other than obviously the imperial system, on the local and cultural level, Ethiopia was a collective village-style society. People have, it's like a medieval Europe, you know? Everyone in the village, mm -hmm. one person takes care of all the kids, one person uh, keeps the church you know, intact, one person's the merchant, one person hunts and leaves hunting packs to look for food, you know? Mm -hmm. And the Kabele system married that way of life with Marxism-Leninism. And the way they did that was in the workers' councils, I mean, the Kabele system, or the village councils or village associations, they practiced democratic centralism at the local level by deciding literacy, who would go to what university, could they afford it? Now, even if, let's say, they say you, they want you to be a anesthesiologist, but you want to be a soul, hey, we'll subsidize in our village association, in our kambele, we'll try to also help you in your, the endeavor that you want to do. So that you, when the dirt was overthrown, the pro-Western neoliberal capitalist regime made every attempt to avoid dismantling it. Because it was the first attempt in Ethiopia in communal, in communal democracy and universal suffrage. It was the first time that people could, as individuals, practice opening opinions and opening perspectives. They don't have mm -hmm. to wait for the Lord or the Negus, which is an Amharic Lord, to come down on his donkey or his horse, you know, wrapped in, you know, the traditional Ethiopian clothes, you know, with a lion's tail for a fan, saying, you're going to grow that this much, you're going to sell at this price, and you're going to give me a quarter of the gold that you make to me. That's actually surprising that you say that even the neoliberal and the capitalist uh, enthusiasts would keep such a structure in place because usually what I kind of wanted to get into now is have you explain more recent events. But I have a feeling, you know, on this on this show, we talk about a lot of historical socialist events or leaders or revolutions and things like that. And we come across a lot of familiar patterns. And I was actually expecting you to yeah. say that the neoliberals and the capitalists did everything they could to dismantle a structure that actually worked really well and helped working people because it hindered them collecting exorbitant profits from surplus labor in some, in some way, because that's usually what we hear happening. Exactly. That's probably just a testament to how well it worked is all. No, no, you're right, you're right. When it came to Ethiopia, Ethiopia, because of their inability to dirt, and I have to accept, 
they sort of failed in addressing national question with just panic of nationalism, but I sympathize with the action. I respect mm-hmm. the tactics. I, I critically support it as a Marxist-Leninist. What the TPLF regime after the dirt came to power, they instead took the pan-Ethiopianist village-based Kabele system and they switched it up for ethnicity. So now the worker cooperatives that the dirt instilled in each community are now the Aromo People's Coffee Production Cooperative, the Amhara Salt Mining Cooperative. You know, they ethnicized it, balkanized, if you will. And that's something that well, you'll see later in our conversation with the TPLF. So let me give you an international example of capitalist regimes keeping something from the social era. In Romania, for example, they kept the housing policy of Ceausescu because it, it actually ended up with about 80 to 90 percent of the population having housing. Same thing with Albania. And it's ironic, you know, because capitalism is supposed to have innovation and productivity. But somehow a decrepit IMF loan suckling regime was able to give full housing. Right, right. For its population, you know? Yeah. So that's something like, just to give you like a little nugget of information, it's across the board, not just Ethiopia. Yeah. All right. Well, we can, um, if you'd like, we can bring it more into modern events. If you'd like to talk about what's been going on in the past year or so, because I know that there's been a lot of, you know, recent events. So we can get into that if you like. We'll go back to the dirt a little later. Okay. So now if we're going to talk about current events, Mike, we have to start at 2018. It's very important that we do. In 2018, the U.S.-backed TPLF regime had sought itself at an impasse with the population. Now, we saw a lot of IMF-driven development, both by the U.S. and China, you know, because China, along with the U.S., pushed Ethiopia to privatize and obey, and we saw shock therapy, you know, something that Naomi Klein rams on about. Mm -hmm. But actually, what she's talking about, not like, oh, you privatized the, um, the, the local rec center, neoliberalism bad. You know what I mean? Right. In Ethiopia, we saw this growth, but it, 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 it wasn't felt by the population. So there was a mass protest movement, uh, mostly in the, in the capital, Addis Ababa, in Aromania, over the lack of development in the Aromo region, and not to mention the lack of development in the Amhara region, while this economy is growing. And the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, by the way, ex-Hoja's party, who then became national conservative because Hoja kicked them out of Albania when they tried to get into the Albanian Party Congress. When we saw the wealth of Ethiopia, because if you ever read economics, they always talk about Ethiopia being the leading light. I mean, George Bush called Meles Anawi, the old TPLF dictator, you know, mm-hmm. the next generation of African leaders. We saw inadequate distribution of wealth. The Tigray region disproportionately kept most of the wealth, most of the decent remittances jobs like Saudi Arabia compared to Amhara, Romos, Amoro, Romo region. When they go to remittances, they have to roll the dice with Lebanon where they're beaten, murdered, etc. And even the public development like healthcare and education in the regions, Tigray disproportionately had a better allocation of resources caused by Ethiopia's development. So in 2016, we saw a boom of protests because in 2016, or no, no, 20 to 2016, yeah, this is before Obama left. Ethiopia had an election and the TPLF regime claimed to win 100% of the vote while they had 250,000 political prisoners. Mm -hmm. Now, we can logically agree 
there's no way they won 100% of the vote with that many political prisoners. There has to be at least 1% that opposed them. So Amharas, known as the Fanno, and the Oromos, known as the Quero. By the way, both of those means young man or young bachelor. Like young man, like in a like confidence sense. Okay. Like you're a man who stands upright. Kind of like Burkina Faso, you know, the name Burkina Faso. Oh, okay. Which uh, Sakar gave it. Like you're standing up to power. The Keros and the Fanos united against TPLF. And the TPLF regime saw one of their puppet parties, which Abi Ahmed, the current leader, led a Roma People's Democratic Organization. By the way, a satellite party just to control the Roma people, which we'll get into a little bit later. They installed Abi, and then they left go of power, and they ran back to Tigray. Okay. And they brought their militias and their death squads, um, famously named the Agazi, and sent them to uh, Mekele, the capital of Tigray. Even the special force, which, by the way, in Ethiopia, special force does not have the same meaning as here in America, like, you know, bearded guy with mounted out gun and, you know, is swole, yeah. sleeveless. Special force in Ethiopia just means like National Guard. The Tigray Special Force had to leave Aromingya, Amhara, Somali region, etc. Because when the TPLF was in power, the Tigray region was almost the vanguard of the EPRDF state. Kind of like in the Rhodesian government, um, the white Rhodesians were the bulk of where the people who defend the regime come from. So yeah. in, 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 during the white, what we call the Wayane era, most of the Ethiopian federal military officers were Tigrayan, and a disproportionate number of the personnel were Tigrayan. Special and its in its death squad, the Agazi, they reigned supreme in other regions, basically, in what is known as ethnic federalism, where Ethiopia, when the dirt fell, it was divided amongst ethnic lines. Now, Zanawi claims that he visited Ethiopia after Mangustu, 91 to 2012, he passes away. Um, but before that, he uses Belgium's example of like how Belgium gave, you know, the, the, the Flemish speaking and the French speaking Belgians autonomy, mm-hmm. like Flanders and whatnot. He uses that as the model. But most people, most analysts accept that he probably is using what is a bastardization of Stalin's creation of, you know, the, um, the Congress of all national, the Soviet, like, uh, I think, committee or, or ministry of nationalities. Okay. It's a, basically a bastardization of how the Soviet Union had ethnic Soviets. The problem is, is in the Soviet Union, each of those ethnic groups had a massive level of autonomy, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they even disagreed with Moscow, more than Ethiopia ethnic regions did. And each ethnic region had a puppet party running it. So in Aromania, like I said earlier, the OPDO, Aroma People's Democratic Organization, it was created to siphon the influence of the Oromo Liberation Front, which pre-exists, which pre- okay. preeminent Oromo nationalist group, the same way the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, is the main Tigrayan political entity. So the Tigrayans, they impose the LPDO amongst the Oromo people. They flirt with ethnic nationalism, bordering on, in some cases, the fascism, which we could talk about later down the road with ethnic cleansing. But mm-hmm. it's almost like a, you could almost say a diet OLS. To the, to the main OLF, you know, like OLF zero calories. And what happens is now these ethnic regions, they have what is known as the Liu Heil or the special force, meaning that they're an ethnic army um, that basically are killed, which means region. Um, they're the regional security forces. 
And under the EPRDF, they commit atrocities siphoning nationalist movements in each region. But the problem is, a lot of the CPLF, they would always argue that, oh, in Amada region, we didn't kill anybody. It was the Amhara National Democratic Movement, which is their satellite party in Amhara. Oh, we didn't kill people in Oromia. That was the Oromo People Democratic Organization. Their party militia did that. We had nothing to do with it, even though we practically created those parties to control the populations. If you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, that's a familiar story. Puppet organizations that you can absolve responsibility through, of course. It's like in South Africa, in the Bantustan system, some of the Bantustans, if you can, you can maybe read this on your own time, they had their own armies and air forces. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, they even had their own agendas. Like some Bantustans would have a proxy conflict with one another. And it was invented on purpose so that it would never be a direct opposition to the white you know, minority. Similar to how all these ethnic regions and their, I guess you could say, controlled opposition, meaning the ethnic nationalist parties that controlled them on behalf of the TPLF, they engaged in semi-petty squabbles with their neighbors. And the main reason is, is like the white South Africans, the Tigrayans only make up no more than 5% of the population. So in a democracy, none of their pro-TPLF policies would ever be supported by the bulk of the Ethiopian people, the 95%. So what they have to do is keep these parties as ethnic groups, as complete as competing interests, constantly at a conflict with one another, you know, and never have a pluralistic opposition to them. Now, we had something close to that in 2010, in 2005, known as Kenjit. The Kenjit movement was an Ethiopian nationalist movement that said, we don't want ethnic federalism, we want Ethiopian nationalism, but we also want better redistribution of wealth. We want a social democracy. Right. That one of the leaders was Bayane Petros, who, led the, who created the first social democratic party. Now, mind you, as a Marxist-Leninist, I don't support them, but I consider them the progressive camp to the TPLF, their neoliberal ethno-nationalism, which, you know, two things that should never be implemented in a, in a multi-ethnic country, neoliberalism and fucking um, and ethno-nationalism. Because yeah. then... You're practically playing Fortnite in real life, you know? I mean, you're just, like, paving the way for fascism. Yeah, and the thing is, you have 95 potential groups that you can build fascism into. So it's literally like Fortnite. You're killing each other in real time, you know, battle royale. If we wanted to give some more context, like, so you're giving a lot of good information. I think that, like, you may still be overestimating how familiar some of the listeners may be with Ethiopia as a country, because I feel like... okay. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we get here is just like, we get nothing. Unless the U.S. military is involved, we get no news about a country, especially in Africa. Like, all you hear is that they're hungry and that they're war-torn. Yeah, if you, you didn't hear this, but on Al Jazeera or BBC, I think, or The Guardian, they interviewed um, the U.S. general to American African standby force. It's, like mm-hmm. a, it's more of like a, a low-budget version of AFRICOM. And they said they're ready to militarily intervene into Ethiopia. Like, we're ready to intervene. Like, just like they want to do uh, what they did to Grenada in 82. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, bulk up the re- their regional allies and occupy Ethiopia. But the problem is it, it would be a nightmare because Grenada only had, like, 300,000 people. Ethiopia is 116 million. You're not going to be able to pull off an occupation like that. Ethiopia is a, it's, it's a landlocked country, isn't it? Yeah, but it's it's also a super crowded country too. Logistically a nightmare. 
I mean, look at Afghanistan. Afghanistan only had, what, 20, 30 million people? Yeah. And the Americans only controlled the capitals. The, the, outside, the outside rural areas was like bandit country, you know? I mean, the Taliban, they controlled areas of Afghanistan while the U.S. was still there, you know? So imagine occupying Ethiopia, literally, the, I think, the 10th most populated country on Earth. You're not going to pull that off. Yeah. 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 Even if he paid off some ethnic nationalist groups in the government, you're going to have a contracted guerrilla war that's popular. Well, I wanted to um, see if we could focus a little more on, on Abiy Ahmed, like you were talking about. Abiy Ahmed, he was the head of Ethiopia's uh, secret police under TPLF, known as NISA, Network Intelligence Security Agency. And he was head from 1991 to 2016. Now, Abiy he becomes extremely opportunistic because Abi, like me, is ethnically mixed. Like I told you, I'm Amhara and Grage. Now, Abi Ahmed, on the other hand, he has the ethnic composition of the two largest ethnic groups and the two largest ethnic groups that have the most hostile opinion toward TPLF, if that makes any sense. So what the TPLF do, they say, Abi Ahmed, you're going to be acting prime minister for right now. And we relinquish our power in the EPRDF coalition state, uh, party or government. And what happens is Abi, the first thing he does to antagonize TPLF is he goes to make peace with Eritrea. And this is where it starts. They start the wedding that is EPRDF started to become a divorce. And then after that, Abi releases all political prisoners in Ethiopia. Now, mind you, he goes back on it, but we're not there yet. And then uh, he asked armed groups outside of Ethiopia to return under a ceasefire and a disarmament process. Mm. Very similar to, uh, what's it called? How, uh, what, what's a similar historical example? It's kind of like how the Senanistas and the Contras after the Civil War both voluntarily disarmed. Oh, okay. I was thinking the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that works too. Yeah. And but what happens is a lot of those like the OLF, the Aroma Liberation Front, the uh, Ogadin, Ogadin meaning Somali, the Somali National Liberation Front, Ogadin National Liberation Front, the Sidama National Liberation Movement, um, the Fondo, the uh, Ethiopian People's Patriotic Front, Gambelan People's Liberation Movement, all these ethnic armies in South Sudan. In Eritrea, they returned to Ethiopia, they disarmed, and they joined the political process. Some of them even joined the military. Now, what happens after that is that a man by the name of Jawar Muhammad, an ethnic nationalist who, from Minnesota, you know, one of those diaspora activists who so happens to have a pro-Western position and lives in America, mm-hmm. he pushes the Cairo protest movement into a more ethno-nationalist line. They become more antagonistic towards us Amhara people. They start to have more of a blood and soil ideology. Nice. And what happens is in 2019, they ethnically cleanse them and the Oromo regional government who tongue-in-cheek agrees with them. It's kind of like Republicans and white supremacists or three percenters or proud boys. Kind of like that. They oppose each other, but ideologically, they're virtually super similar. Mm -hmm. They ethnically cleanse about 800,000 Gidio, which are a minority in central Aromania. And then they ethnically cleanse 
about 300,000 ethnic Somalis from um, East Hagere zone in Eastern Romania, which meets with the, the Ogden or Somali region. And after that, they start committing massacres. And they how, how were they doing this, by the way? Was this all just like, sorry to interrupt, but like, was this all just like death squads, like Contras, or did they have camps? Like, how were they doing this? The Keros? Yeah. When they're, when so they're just doing this ethnic cleansing, like, how is this going It's a two-pronged thing. It's a three-pronged problem. One, you have the diasporas like Jawar living in America. Um, and Facebook, in fact, the Facebook lady who went to stand against Zuckerberg, she even points to Ethiopia as one of the countries they failed to stop hate speech. They start, Jawar starts saying that, you know, you have to take matters into your own hands, you know, just like the, you know, Richard Spencer kind of guy. Right. And the second prong is the OLF. Now, the OLF, they never completely disarmed. And a wing of the OLF, calling it the armed wing of the, of the party, the Oromo Liberation Army, they break off from the OLF because they say, we're not going to make a deal with the Abis government. And now the third prong problem in the Oromo nationalism is the Oromo regional government, which is hyper-reactionary. They almost are at a competition with each other. Who will ethnically cleanse the other first? But also, the Oromo regional government, they still have to be loyal to Abi, so they tone down their ethno-nationalism, kind of like Republicans. You know, when they do their racism, they kind of tone it down compared to their proud boy, yeah. identity Europa, you know, uh, secret friends and associates. And what happens is, Ethiopia in 2019, one year with Abi, becomes the worst humanitarian crisis without a conflict. And then it goes back under the rug. In 2020, a guy by the name of Hulachu Hadesa is murdered. He's an Oromo nationalist singer. And what ends up happening is we have what is known as the Halachu Handesa protests. And in the protests, lots of people are killed. And also a lot of ethnic minorities who are like ethnic Amharas, who, by the way, like I told you, have very deep faith in the Ethiopian nation state and it as a project. They are targeted by the Oromo nationalists and they're killed and they're uh, harassed. Their buildings are burnt down. And this is not just Amharas, Somalis and Gidios and other ethnic minorities in Oromia. Okay. And what ends up happening is Abi tries to put them down and he doesn't. But he does a tongue-in-cheek police operations here and there. But at the same time, he horrendous atrocities against the Oromo. And as a Marxist Leninist, we have to be dialectical about this. You know, I oppose the Keros, but I don't support the actions made against them. Like, there is some brutal medieval stuff that obviously a security apparatus does to the carols that I some I like oh to a degree sympathize with what's going on with them. You know, if only there weren't ethnically cleansing people, they would have my full support. Right, right. Now Jawar, he gets thrown in prison. He's then blamed for the murder of Halachu Andesa. Now there's also evidence of the OLA threatening to murder him and. It's very murky who killed Halachu, but it's never, it doesn't even matter at this point. Tigray and the TPLF, they start arming proxies and creating connections with the uh, armed groups in Ethiopia. Also, they start having more connections with the U.S. security state. In fact, Gatacho Reda, who is the spokesperson of TPLF, he ends up admitting in an interview that the U.S. had a secret communique with them when they were on the verge of uh this is later this is in 2021 when they were on the verge they said 
He said he admitted to right before they they claimed to capture the capital. They claimed that they were in contact with the Americans as far back as 2019. So the TPLF also have some role in the Oromo protest and instigating it, mm. because an unstable Ethiopia, just like my example, uh, Mike earlier with the Bantustan system in South Africa, is the very idealistic situation the TPLF wants to be in, because. Then the Ethiopian government's hands are too tied to address TPLF directly because Abi he starts persecuting leadership in the TPLF for corruption because it, it is it's not not a country in Western human rights institutions like Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights, uh, Transparency International. It's well grounded that Ethiopia is a highly corrupt country when the TPLF is in power. I was going to ask you to talk about the one particular, I mean, not particular event, but like. I guess what's been ongoing since then was like around the election the war. Well, I mean, the 2020 election, I know that um, what I had here in my notes was that the, the, the government mobilized its military on November 4th and literally it got no media attention because the presidential election in the U.S. was sucking up all the airways. And so I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that particular day and like what's been going on since then, because I have a feeling like that's obviously had some ramifications for the, the past year. So are you talking about the Ethiopian elections or the or both the Ethiopian and American? No, I mean, not about the American election, just that that's, you know, that made headlines while what was actually going on in Ethiopia was a lot more pressing because it, it, what I had here in my notes was that the the Tigrayans went, went one step further and defied the government by holding their own elections the following month. And what followed were reports of the Ethiopian government mobilizing its military in the early hours of November 4th. Yeah, so the TPLF line is that the war happened specifically because of the election. The war happened because the TPLF, one, they bombed. By the way, and, I, and I, this is another example of the, the privilege that TPLF had. Their Liu Heil, or the security force, the special force, had access to Ethiopia's best weapons compared to its region, regional uh, neighbors. And the TPLF, they bomb Eritrea, like they bomb Asmara, the capital, and they bomb Amhara region, Bahardar, Amhara's mm -hmm. capital. And then they attempt to seize the north. They actually successfully do, but obvious government lies about it. They seize the northern army command, and they steal about 80% of Ethiopia's best weaponry. Now, obvious government claims, oh, we got it back, but we both know that's a big stack of bullshit. Because they even proved through video evidence they took most of Ethiopia's air defense systems, a good chunk of Ethiopia's tanks like T-72s uh, were taken, even the, and by the way, the most modern T-72s that we had in stock, you know. And they took a large chunk of those light firearms that the NDF had, because back in the day when Ethiopia and Eritrea were at each other's throats, most of our advanced weaponry were in the Northern Command, were in Tigray, because that would defend us from Eritrea, Sudan, and Egypt. So that was a big problem. And mind you, like I told you earlier, the majority of the ENDF's central military, ENDF, by the way, ENDF is the National Ethiopian National Defense Force, the military of Ethiopia. Okay. Most of their military brass are TPLF. So when this attack happened, the war had to be accelerated by Abi because not only do the TPLF have the ground advantage in leadership, they have most of the resources. And Amhara region, uh, they had a claim to Western Tigray known as Welkite. And in Welkite, we, they were forced 
to basically identify as Tigrayan, even though Welkite people do not identify as Amhara or Tigrayan. They're a mix. You know what I mean? It's kind of like how the Poles, with contact with Germany and Russia, they ended up developing their own language. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in Welkite, a, a syncretism of Amhara, Amhara, repressed, murdered, slaughtered. They basically did what Colombian death squads do to union activists in Colombia. They like just are social group. Right. And what happened was Amhara region after, by the way, getting attacked unprovoked in their own capital, getting bombed with ballistic missiles, like Scud missiles. Amhara region declared war on Tigray. And the first thing that they did was they did a blitzkrieg and they captured Western Tigray, which is Welkite. And they took over administration of it. And after the, the attack on the Northern Command, you saw the deadliest massacre of this war, which is the Maikadra massacre in the town of Maikadra, where about 600, which is the UN's estimate, and uh, 1,600, which is the Ethiopian Human Rights Council, not Human Rights Commission, which is controlled by obvious government. The Human Rights Council, they put about 1,600 to 1,800 innocent people slaughtered. Think Amhara. And... Ethnic Tigrayans who tried to hide their Amhara neighbors were butchered by the TPLN militias. And then that accelerated the war. And it made it very ugly. Because then there were repressory attacks against Tigrayans in anger of that attack. But the problem is, the Tigrayans, they claim they're fighting a war of survival. And, uh, but in reality, they're fighting to reclaim control. Their first claim was to build a traditional government when they were trying to grab the capital. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it was just EPRDF regime. And by the way, EPRDF, that's the TPLF's coalition government. EPRDF stands for Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. It's like a right-winger's attempt at a leftist party, Ugh. like an FBI agent's attempt at a left, <laughs> what a left-wing group sounds like. Uh, yeah, yeah. What ends up happening is the UN investigate, and they even conclude against the, the TPLF that there is no, nothing that's happening in Tigray. Like, they accept, yes, food has been withheld from the Tigrayan people, but none of that even concludes or verifies the claim that there's an act of extermination, which the Tigrayans love to cry about and claim, or an act of a planned genocide. So the, the UN, they just dunk on TPLF and say, no, this is not what is considered a genocide. And the TPLF, mind you, they've tried to develop themselves in the UN. Remember, the biggest UN institution, the World Health Organization, was the old TPLF Minister of Health, uh, Dr. Tedros, who's the WHO uh, director. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he's also responsible for covering up a cholera outbreak that killed a quarter of a million people and a mass sterilization campaign of ethnic Amharas, which people forget about. I never even knew about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only thing is, those facts were weaponized against them by some reactionary Brazilian guy who's trying to get the spot before him. But that doesn't debunk what happened. Those are still facts regardless. All right. I mean, it's well known that the TPLF would go so far as to deny maternity medicine to an ethnic region if they didn't show loyalty. Well, I mean, one of the, that actually brings you to another point that I kind of wanted to ask, which is that yeah. one of the things that is making headlines about Ethiopia here in the West, at least, is that there has been a lot of sexual violence intentionally used against women in the area. The one video that I was watching had a very neoliberal framing, like I was mentioning before we started recording. Oh, yeah. They did mention that that is still something that, oh, hold on, let me see if um, I have a, a couple lines here I could just read to. Oh, yeah. It's an entirely different article. It was, um, there was an article, this was titled, Women Accused TPLF of Mass Rape. Yes. And the, the quote was, 
Nifas Mucha, uh, a town in northern Ethiopia, was attacked. Where 80, uh, 20 to 80 women were raped, correct? It just said several. It didn't actually give a number. But, yeah, I mean, if you know more about it in the article, because all I have is that one paragraph. So in Nifas Mucha, there was mass rape in Debra Tabor, which is like a couple of uh, minutes away to uh, Nafas Micha, there was a, another war crime against humanity, which was the use, like, mass bombing of towns and cities against the civilian population to force them to submit to TPLF, which was confirmed by a literal UN investigation. So they weren't just raping people. They were deliberately bombing cities to get them to cooperate with the TPLF. They virtually did every single thing that, by the way, they're apologists in academia, and in uh, Western media, we're saying, so the TPLF, they have a lot of apologists in Western academia. Do you know the, fa- the New York University, Tufts, Tufts University, yeah. T-U-F-T? Famous one. Probably it's like the Harvard for international politics. Mm-hmm. Um, their director, Alex DeWall, he used to be a TPLF apologist in the 80s, and he used to lobby for the U.S. government to give him support. And he is a large source of all the pro-TPLF propaganda. Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of like um, Judith Miller, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who lied about Iraq and Israel and Palestine. Uh, Ethiopia, we have like at least 30 different kinds of Judith Millers. There's another group called International Crisis Group. If you know them, they're like a neocon think tank that advocates for a U.S. military intervention. One of their people, uh, William Davison, his, he's another massive apologist for the TPLF. In fact, his political career practically was created in Abiy to downplay the human rights violations that the TPLF did, and he literally tells their line. Another one is the United Nations University. His director, Tadele Maru, is himself an ex-TPLF member. So, like, they're well ingrained in the Ethiopian and American political system. They even had a lobby. Do you know the lobby, uh, DLA Piper? I haven't heard of that one, no. It's based in Washington, actually. And they used to pay DLA Piper uh, 3 to $4 million a month to pay academics and to pay news organizations to defend Ethiopia as this developing, somewhat democratic, but they're trying type of right, country. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like with conservatives defend uh, uh, the Philippines to hurt pay. Like, oh, you know, he's got to fight terrorism. Sometimes he has to murder a heroin addict here and there in front of their family. But he's developing. Look at that GDP growth. Yeah. Look at it. Look at the graph. I mean, so that makes me wonder, since you're mentioning the lobbying groups and everything, because there's no shortage of really niche kind of like lobbying groups in the U.S., whether they're from Turkey or whatever random country that you would think would not have so much influence that it does here. But like, is it really just about like arms sales or is it more complicated than that? I know there's probably an ideological component, too. There's literally six journalists from NYT and Washington Post, where all Western institutions get their news on Ethiopia from. There's like this six journalists. I don't have the graph anywhere, but um, it's like an infographic. Like you can just go on Google Images. But Alex DeWall is one of them. Alex DeWall from Tufts University, Martin Plot, University of uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And then you have Kejet Torovol. He's a, he's a, he's a Dan- Danish guy. No, Norwegian of the University of Oslo. And all of those people, Dual and Toraval, both of them were with the TPLF as far back as their war with the Derg. And from the late 80s to now, they've been actively doing apologia for them. And as a result, they skew a lot of stuff that they talk about in favor of the TPLF as either this, this good faith reformist movement 
than a dictatorship of neoliberal capitalism. Moderate rebels, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Just like the gray zone would like to say, you know, the meme that the gray zone invented, the moderate rebel meme. That's a great one. Yeah, it's a correct one, too. Classic moderate rebels, you know, insert moderate rebels meme when it comes to Ethiopia. Not to mention the Oromo nationalists, on the other hand, they have weaponized themselves on the left. So, for example, they'll be interviewed by Berhana Joy Gray, and their point of view is then signal boosted. They'll go to Popular Front, you know, that leftist guy, Jake Hanrahan, yeah. who um, on Popular Front, he's interviewed TPLF and OLA and a Romo nationalist, and he signal boosts their narrative. So they, it's kind of like, you know, how a lot of anarchists, a lot of democratic socialists, they take the Washington line on like Cuba and Venezuela. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah, Jake Hanrahan has like a podcast on QAnon, and he's usually got some good stuff, but I had heard other people in the leftist kind of online spaces say that he's problematic for different reasons, but they didn't outline why, and that's probably taking some colonial stances on some things. Bro, 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 Mike, that guy, I'm going to be honest with you, that guy has a two terabyte hard drive of uh, Rojava YPG hentai. That guy jerks off about the curve <laughs> 24-7. That's the only thing he's left wing about. Yeah, And that's the only thing, I, I mean, sometimes he's fun to talk about because I'm a nerd when it comes to military logistics. Mm. You know, like, you know, guerrilla warfare, even very vehicles from tanks or whatever, or like uh, fighter jets. I like to read. I'm, I'm the kind of kid that will look up a, a wiki or an article on a T-72 upgrade that Russia did and read it in detail because I love yeah. that shit, you know? But he does that too, and I like that about him. But other than that, his politics is piss poor, especially in Tim Dry. Because he interviewed Maza Gadai, who's the most, she is the Ann Coulter of Ethiopian politics. Ugh. Like how Ann Coulter is a closet, like, white supremacist bitch. Maza Gadai is like a closet to grind nationalist psychopath. Like, she would unironically say the EPRDF was democratically elected. On Western media, no one would challenge her. Oh, yeah, they just don't, they either don't know or they don't care. Like. Yeah, it's just like if, we, if you saw France 24, there's a pro Eastern guy, and then there's a pro uh contra or pro color revolution guy or growl and then when the color revolution person says something wrong they don't say anything but when the sanonista guy says something a little bit angsty a little bit of sort of like oh you know that's authoritarian why would you say that oh my god yeah be reasonable no you gotta be modest (laughs) you can't just say that you know what i mean right oh my gosh she got destroyed one day there's this guy who's just calm and hit her with the one two with the facts and she just had a mental breakdown in al jazeera but like I was saying earlier, the Oromo nationalists and the TPLF both weaponize media, they weaponize academia, so that their movement seems like something that people have been following for years. One institution for the Oromos is the Oromo Studies Association. Now, the Oromo Studies Association has been, they're kind of like the IAPAC of Ethiopian academia. They will, they will hunt you down if you don't play to their narrative where Ethiopia is an evil empire, evil empire and the Oromos are repressed. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're own. They're junkyard dogs. I always like to call them uh, Ethiopian Johnny Cochran's, if you know who that guy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very vile. They're going to verbally fight you. Like, I have a friend, I don't want to say his name, but he's a, he's a history in medieval, he's a historian in medieval Europe. Um, but he never covers Ethiopian. He's Ethiopian just as much as I am. Because he tells me, like, IAPAC people will, not IAPAC, but uh, um, say people, well, it's the same thing at this point. They will literally make sure that you don't get tenure and make sure that you don't get a job teaching Ethiopian history. Because then they'll be like, hey, here's me, here's uh, 
you know, there's one guy, his name is Gelada. You know, people like to make fun of him because his name's a coffee. Gelada, <laughs> Asefa. Him and others are notorious for gaslighting through articles about even history on Ethiopia, like Richard Pankhurst. He's the daughter of Sylvia Pankhurst, a famous uh, leftist activist. Mm. And uh, they like make articles over and over how he's their dumb. They don't understand Ethiopian history, etc. And what happened was, is they became like the National Policy Institute of Ethiopia, if you know what that is. That's Richard Spencer and uh, Jared Taylor's little organization. Oh, nice. Yeah, their their continuous line is like anti-Amhara nationalism, global nationalism. And when Jawar came along, they was like, yeah, now we have a popular guy. We can weaponize our rhetoric. Because Jawar, before Tupilov's fall, was like, we should have some type of pluralistic democracy. Let's address the national question with ethnic diversity, but let's also keep Ethiopia together. After 2018, he noticed that he could not ally with the Amhara pan-Ethiopianist camp anymore. And it wasn't politically useful enough anymore. Then he became the I'm in Oromo first, Oromo first Ethiopian, I think second. Mm-hmm. And he abandoned pan-Ethiopianism. And then the OSA, they got signal boosted by him. So when he got incarcerated for two years and he just got released, no, no, he got arrested 2020. He got, he got re-released this year. They like psychopathically tried to get him released, campaigned for him, et cetera, as this human rights activist. Even though there's a massacre in a place called Buara in Aromania where the, uh, what's it called? The Buara massacre was when Jawar, he said, I'm surrounded. All Keros de Buraro, come defend me. And what ended up happening was as many as 80 to 100 people were like brutally murdered. And most of them were either Amharas or Ethiopianists. People who had the traditional Ethiopian flag in green, yellow, red, mm-hmm. instead of the one with the little star, the little pentagram on it. And that signaled the turn of from a human rights one to a reaction one, you know. But that's what do you get from a classically liberal nationalist movement? We've seen this a trillion times. Yeah. Like the liberal factions of the parties movement in Europe in World War II, they all became reactionary when it wasn't politically viable to ally with the communists. That's kind of what I was hoping to get out of tonight is like our listeners will hopefully come away with this knowing who to support and who not to support because I can't tell you how much time I spend online more than I should because there's no point in arguing about it. Like trying to explain to people that Svoboda is not actually a good thing. Maybe they shouldn't be supporting quote unquote freedom fighters in Ukraine who are protesting waving Nazi flags and everything. It's like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you have to support the Ethiopian working class and progressive nationalists in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. You have to address... There is a lot of injustice against the Oromos, which I accept, but there's almost... There's no way of denying it at this point. Mm-hmm. Even Genocide Watch made an article like in-depth that they sent to the UN about how they're at a high stage of genocide. They're at, I think, stage four, which is normalization. I don't know the specific terminology, but they're at a high stage now. And with what's happening in Mekatel, which is the Mekatel massacre, where about 150 to 200 Amharas were taken out of a bus and brutally murdered. They were uh, taken out of a, a bus, by the way, which had hundreds of people. They were singled out for being Amhara, and they were hacked to death with machetes. And this also was a, the craftsman work of the ethno-nationalist camp. Now, don't get me wrong, the Amhara nationalist movement, the Fanos, they're not particularly not guilty of anything. I refuse to accept that. 
but to pretend as though they that the Romo Nationals have done virtually nothing which the media likes to promote is like itself another example of normalization of like literal murder, which is happening across Ethiopia right now. But um, yeah, like that's the problem in Ethiopia. We have competing ethnic nationalism, but two of those nationalisms, specifically Tigrayan and Oromo, they have links to the West, deeply to the West. And Hara nationalism, I will be honest, has reactionary tendencies, have had moments of unnecessary, like the way some Tigrayans in Western Tigray, which is Alkite, were ethnically cleansed by Amhara regional forces in the Fano. Fano, by the way, after the, when the Tigray war happened, the Fano went from a student movement to an armed movement, you know? Yeah. Yeah, all right. So when it comes to the Amhara nationalist movements, and sorry, you'll have to clump up the podcast today, but... um, Yeah, that's no problem at all. Just, uh, yeah, pick up where you left off. That's fine. All right. So with the Amhara nationalist movement, they're obviously guilty, most definitely guilty of atrocities and horrendous human rights violations. But at the same time, Amharas, whom have the third lowest expectancy, they have low, no, no representation. If Amharas try to move politically as one unit, they're usually castrated as like, oh, they want the empire to return. Because one thing I didn't say is that Amharas have ethnically made up a large chunk of the ruling bureaucracy um, under the monarchy. They made up a large chunk of the ruling class. But they weren't the only ruling class. That's the problem, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, ruling classes don't usually tolerate co-rulers. Yeah. But I mean, at one point in time, during the main Mesfens, which is, means the era of judges, we had a multi-ethnic empire and rulers for about 80 years. So it also affected the ethnic composition of Ethiopia, you know? But um, what I will say is that the conflict in of itself... It, it comes from marrying itself from the contradictions of the national question, which the dirt tried to answer. That's where most of Ethiopia's problems derive from. I will at some point ask you, I don't know if this is the appropriate time, but like what I tend to try to, to end up with is like a picture to give our listeners, like who they can con like with any kind of good conscience support even critically. And if there's anything that they can do to like to help, because I know you mentioned coffee production and I know that is a big part of it. It's like, should people, Boycott Ethiopian coffee? No, 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 no. That's basically, I like to consider boycotts are usually just like civil sanctions on a country in a way. Right. Like you're punishing the population. Because unlike countries like Israel where their BDS are doing good work, Ethiopia is a country that has subsistence farming. So the food that they sell and eat are what basically decides whether or not they're going to die of hunger or not. So I refuse to do that. That's it's sociopathic, but there's a lot of political elites that like actively support Ethiopians doing that. And I, I really, I'm very repulsed by those people. It's repulsive. Like you literally want Ethiopians to die, you know? Yeah. That's what you mean. Yeah. It's like the sanctions that the U S put on Vietnam. Like you don't like the communist government. Fine. But are you going to punish the people? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. You're going to underdevelop Vietnam after they kicked your ass, you know? So now you got to make their people suffer for it. Eh, come on, man. Who to support? Support the Ethiopian people. Support the working class of Ethiopia. Don't support Abi. But if you, if you want to have like a state or an institution, support Ethiopia 
moving forward, but not the Ethiopian government. Do you get what I'm saying? No, I mean, that's usually how most leftists say they feel about existing socialist countries. Not even socialist countries, like non-socialist ones. Because I will oh, yeah. say that Abi, he is turning towards an anti-imperialist. I mean, he kicked AFRICOM and the drone bases America had and the black sites that the CIA had in Ethiopia. He closed them, which I think is a progressive step. Yeah, but also, great. he did continue the police state that the TPLF had, which is why so many Amharas and Oromos despise him. Mm-hmm. You know, because he did, did some reforms and then he regressed. Like many post-dictatorship leaders. He's kind of like the leader in Burma. The lady, uh, Aung San Kui, Aung San Kui, the woman in uh, Myanmar, basically like that. A reformer that turned bad. Well, that's how the, uh, the video that I mentioned that I watched, and I'm going to include all the videos and the articles that I read in preparation for this in the show notes if anybody else wants to follow up on those sources. But um, like I said, it had a very neoliberal framing, and they were saying, like, how did Abiy Ahmed go from receiving a Nobel Peace Prize to being a dictator in just two years. And it's like, I could tell right away that that's not like obviously a fully fleshed out framing of what's going on. It's like a very simplistic Western way of looking at it. Oh, I mean, when we call Abi a dictator, we have to remember, he, is he authoritarian in many ways? Yes. But in many ways, he's a, it's a double-edged sword. So for example, a lot of opposition are in his cabinet. The Minister of Education is a member of the shitty opposition called Ethiopia for Social Justice. And some of them are from NAMA, National Movement of Amhara, which is an Amhara Nationalist Party, which is center-right. And some of them, now NAMA, for example, they kicked out the Prosperity Party, which is Abi's party. A large chunk of Ethiopia, Amhara region is run by Amhara Na- NAMA. Mm-hmm. Because they just, these, these Prosperity Party goons, by the way, the EPRDF, it reorganized into a neoliberal nationalist party, not, a, not an ethnic federalist party. The um, Prosperity Party became a neoliberal nationalist from a neoliberal ethnic federalist party, EPRDF. And the Prosperity Party in Amhara, they just fled every time the TPLF would capture city, and Nam and the Fanos would unite against them. And they would win the admiration and respect of the Fano. In fact, the Fano they even had mutual aid and attempts to help, like, uh, what's it called, uh, refugees from Amhara cities that were fleeing and build social order, you know? And obviously, they operate almost like a gang in terms of organization, not in terms of practice, because they don't have any collective leadership. They're kind of like an amhifa that does morally, morally abhorrent certain things once in a while. Hmm. But I materially understand their, their exhaustion. I mean, the Amharic regional government, to some extent, and to a massive extent, TPLF and Abi, they screwed them over for 30 years. No political representation. Yeah. And there's normalized rhetoric, anti-genocide rhetoric against the Maras. Now, a lot of Ethiopianists, if you have the original Fabio, the red, which is a pan-Ethiopian symbol, you can get arrested. Even the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is like the most sacred institution to the Ethiopian nation state, they're not given exceptions to this. There are Orthodox priests being arrested for wearing the Ethiopian flag. Because, Mike, if you've ever seen, like, Ethiopian garments or clothes, it's all white. And on the edge, you see the Ethiopian flag, the green, yellow, red. That is not allowed anymore. You're not allowed to wear Habesha libs or Ethiopian clothes with the, with the old tricolor. It's banned. So, Abi, he's divorcing himself from the pan-Ethiopianist bloc as he's trying to capitulate to a new camp. And originally, he was like, I'm a liberal reformer. I'm an Ethiopian nationalist. No, it's, I'm an ethnic federalist, 
and I want diverse ethnic diversity, just like the TPLF, you know? Yeah. And like the TPLF, those same John Dungeons, like one human rights activist, Eskinder Nega, he was thrown by the TPLF regime for 10 to 20 years in prison, and he was re-released under the last year of the TPLF because they were trying to do reforms, incarcerate again, and then Abi released him and then threw him back in jail. So he's watched almost two regimes throw him in prison, and he has the same criticisms. So it's Kinder Nega. He builds a party called Baldara, which means it's an acronym like another, you know, Ethiopians, we like to use like little catch names like TPLF or Wayani, OLF or Shani, Amhara nationalists are Fano, Roma nationalists are Kero. Uh, Baldaras is like a, again, a center right socially liberal party that tries to address human rights but not economic problems. Okay. It's like being an ML, you know, during the rise of Lula, you know, like centrist but pro democracy at the end of the day, but doesn't address the problems of the state. Baldaras, they actually protest the Ethiopian elections because they are rigged and their, their leadership are thrown in prison or they're not even allowed to run. They're banned, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is another problem in Ethiopia now, is that the Ethiopian elections, which Western media say, even though they hate Abi, they then say Abi won a democratic uh, election. Here's the problem. He won an election just like the TPLF did in a coalition where he won, again, out of the 460 seats, he won 150, no, 459. One, one seat was given to NAMA, National Movement of Amhara. And as a result, one of the leaders, the Ethiopian Minister of Technology, is a member of NAMA. And he becomes the Minister of Technology and Communications. And he becomes part of the cabinet. Burhanunega of Azima, he becomes Minister of Education. So you have two opposition ministers, but they really are just tongue-in-cheek opposition. NAMA, on the other hand, regionally, they're their own entity. But nationally, they, they're loyal to Abi. But it's a strategic alliance. It's not one like they're a puppet like the, just like the Oromo People's Democratic Organization was to the TPLF. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, what I would say is support is that you have to support the working class of Ethiopia. You have to support Ethiopia in transition, but you have to think beyond Abi. Do not fall short of supporting Abi like Harmela Aragawi does on Breakthrough News, doing apologia. Abi is a neoliberal, reactionary nationalist who is a poison to Ethiopian development. He's not addressed capitalism. In fact, he claimed to be a democratic socialist. Then he claimed that the road of Ethiopia is capitalism. So he, he, is, he has no ideology other than Abiy Ahmed, yeah. unfortunately. And uh, what I will say for people who listen to your podcast, what American leftists have to do is they have to do what Breakthrough News did, the little, the Eugene Period PSL guy, after they stopped showing Aragawi, you have to show it at both sides. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that Ethiopia is like a post-ethnic federalist state, but it's trying to transition out of the ethnic question to a national one. And they're trying to remove the remnants of the TPLF era, which completely alienated the Ethiopian people for 30 years. We occupied our neighbor, our brotherly, uh, our brother, our brother nation, Somalia, for five years because Bush and Obama told them to. We killed 30,000 people. We displaced 20% of the Somali population. 
horrible atrocities, you know, rape, what have you, by the TPLF. And even now, the irony is that the TPLF themselves were later discovered through a human investigation of committing rape against their own people. So, for example, uh, Mike, in, in Mekale, the capital of Tigray, the Ethiopian federal military has a uniform textile plant for their, either for their, the regional special force, the regional, pol- the Liuhail, as I told you earlier, the special police, and the ENDF. Now, the ENDF, they are modernized. They have digital camouflage. If you look up, maybe if you're near your computer right now, the Ethiopian military camo, it's a brown and black digitalized. Okay. The Tigray Special Force is a old American style, you know, that chocolate chip camouflage that we used yeah. in the Gulf War? That's the, that's the Tigray police camo. And then the Liuhail is like a reddish color of that. Now, it was later shown that the textile was still making ENDF uniforms. So a lot of TPLF fighters would dress up as ENDF soldiers and commit horrendous atrocities. In fact, they would interview Tigrayans who, in fear, were scared that TPLF agents were amongst the UN interviewers, just like how a lot of Iraqis were afraid of um, American agents amongst the weapons inspectors, you know? Right. Because the TPLF, like I told you earlier with Dr. Tedros and other individuals, they are ingrained in the UN. In fact, there is an American activist, and he's an example of what you should do with Ethiopia. Although I don't like his instances of denying atrocities that my country's military and people of my ethnic community have done. I don't like him doing that. Like how some people think the Cuban Revolution, like, you know, we support him, me and you and I, because we're leftists. But we also accept there were mistakes that individual revolutionaries did. Yeah. And we would be LARPers. LARPer uh, nerds, you know, you, you know that meme, uh, actually, like a nerdy guy? Yeah, well, actually, yeah. We, that's, yeah, well, actually, we'd be that guy. Now, I don't like Jeff Pierce for that, but Jeff Pierce struck a gold mine as an activist. He found in a, a literal Zoom call with UN Congress people and David Yamamoto, Obama and George Bush's ambassador to Ethiopia, conspiring with UN officials and academics in a Zoom call about what would Ethiopia be after Abi. And it was exposed. It has 300,000 views. Each of the people have tried to literally uh, de-platform the video. They've tried to delete it. They've tried to even sue YouTube for it. I love that. So follow Jeff Pierce's example. Have criticisms of the Ethiopian state, but also exposed the TPLF and the Aroma Nationalist opposition. Because in that video, you had Congress people, you had former secretaries of state, you had David Yanomoto, the U.S. ambassador for Ethiopia, you had, um, um, and others, and you and other U.N. officials on there, literally talking about how they were in contact with the TPLF, how they could help the TPLF promote their image and disable Abiy economically and politically. So that's what you have to do. Another example is how he got interviewed UN people about how TPLF allied people would, were originally trying to get to grind refugees to come to Rwanda because Paul Kagame was a deep political ally of the TPLF regime so that they could create an armed uh, faction that would fight the Ethiopian government. Kind of like how, maybe if you know anything about Iranian politics, Mike, how uh, the People's Mujahideen of Iran they had a base in Albania, and a U.S. Army base. I didn't know that, no. 
Yeah, they, well, it turned out the Albanian authorities off found out the last minute to kick them the fuck out. Yeah. And they even had a base in Iraq while the U.S. was occupying Iraq to start an insurrection within Iraq. This is what's happening in Ethiopia now. It's a proxy conflict. And now there are undisputed evidence that the U.S. is tipping the favor for uh, TPLF right now. So what not just the American leftists, but Ethiopian leftists, they need to do is we need to say, as Lenin said, what is to be done? We need to address TPLF, combat them as what they are, which is ethnic fascists. And we also have to answer the national question of Ethiopia. When we don't answer it, of what is Ethiopia? You know, is it the Ethiopia of the empire or can it be the Ethiopia of the Dirk, the socialist state? We don't address that. The ethnic nationalists of the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, and the Aroma Liberation Front win every single time. Because what they're arguing is that they like to call Ethiopia an empire. Why? That that's where Ethiopian nationalism derives from, the imperial state, you know? Mm-hmm. And like Lenin, we have to address reactionary nationalism and progressive nationalism. There are true progressives, Mike, in Ethiopia that are nationalistic, that want to fix ethnic problems in Ethiopia. And then there are reactionaries who say that the old system is good and we should never uh, fix it whatsoever. Right. It's kind of like how in Ukraine, there are communist MLs that fight the Ukrainian state and they do a fantastic job. Then there are MLs who just like the Soviet Union for what it is aesthetically. Mm-hmm. They're aestheticists. They're not ideological people. Yeah. No, I think you do a perfectly good job of sort of wrapping that up in a nice bow for our listeners because that's a very familiar story for all of us. It's like, I don't think anybody who listens to this podcast would really think that like Bashar al-Assad is a great guy or that Putin is a great guy or that we should like really support Russia. But if you support even Gray Zone, sorry for interrupting you. No problem at all. Even Gray Zone, Andra, Andre Mat- Andra Matei. Oh, Aramata, yeah. Aramata. He even said it himself, like Assad did terrible things during the Kalmashi Kurdish protests. He did terrible things in 2011. But that doesn't mean we have to advocate for imperialism. Because the Syrian people have suffered the most in the Assad regime. Yeah, you can very critically support these anti-imperialist leaders. And I think that's the that's the impression I have of Abiy Ahmed coming away from this is that, yeah, obviously doing some... The thing is, you actually did me a favor, Mike. Abiy Ahmed is literally the Assad of, um, what's it called, Ethiopia. He comes from a left-wing front that is center-left but has turned to the right, which is, you know, the National Progressive Front of Syria, which the uh, Ba'athists lead, just mm. like Prosperity Party. They used to be the EPRDF, which was a, a center, politically center-right coalition, but it campaigned itself as a center-left coalition. You know, it, it used left-wing language. I mean, you obviously see that, Mike, in the name, you know, EPRDF, you know, Ethiopian People's Democratic Revolutionary Front. They also had their own system of oligarchy, economic oligarchy, that although it was capitalistic and right-wing, they called it revolutionary democracy which was this autocratic system of universal suffrage amongst the working class of Ethiopia. They said, we, you do not need to vote as in your cabeles. You need to embrace this revolutionary democracy and this national development program. You know, it almost sounds like, Mike, a Marxist-Leninist five-year plan, you know? Mm-hmm. And they did that massively on purpose, Mike, because they know that the regime that did that first is the regime that is practically poison, not poison, but it is the ideological opponent to the system they're trying to force down the throats of the Ethiopian working class, yeah. you know, which is the Dirk. It's the Dirk without the economic liberation, basically. Yeah, which is the key. I mean, yeah. I mean, look at Romania. 
Romania has been led by reactionary rightists, and I know we mentioned it earlier, but none of them dare to touch the housing policy. Putin, in his own right, is a reactionary rightist, but he would never dare to touch any of the Soviet social programs that still exist now. Why would he do that? That's a good way to destroy the, the... Look at what Kazakhstan did. They followed the IMF. And mind you, I don't support the protesters at all. They removed the Soviet-era fuel subsidies. And the people got enraged. Rightfully so. When I have someone who really knows their stuff like this, like I had notes and I didn't even bother reading them because I would just rather let you talk. And then even if I have to go back and listen to this two or three times to really absorb all the information, that's what I'll do because this is much better than... I don't know, trying to read some Western media framed articles about this stuff and then have you fill in all the gaps or explain why their framing of it is wrong. When I edit this episode, I will get together with you and see what other sources you would like to put in the show notes for anybody else who wants any kind of further reading. Yeah, I actually on my iPhone, I have a whole bookmark list of all my citations. Um, I have them in PDFs because I get a lot of it from, you know, JSTOR. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the weird thing about JSTOR is if you're not a student, you're not able to access it for free. And on just the literacy campaign, I can give you that the UN or even like the University of Toronto, which, you know, it's the University of a reactionary Western state. Even they admitted that the Dirk did tremendous successes, even though it was under siege. Mm -hmm. And the Dirk, unlike the TPLF regime, it didn't have the IMF bankrolling their economy. Right. That's one thing about the TPLF that people kind of make this mistake about is, oh, you developed Ethiopia, you developed Ethiopia. No. You had the IMF pump your economy up the ass with loans, and that was able to give you capital to invest into uh, infrastructure. And by the way, the Ethiopian burr literally collapsed because of this. When my dad left Ethiopia in 1991, Ethiopian burr was equal to the dollar because Mangustu, who is the leader of socialist Ethiopia, Mangustu Halemariam, he actively refused to take any loans for his economy. Therefore, Ethiopia had virtually no debt. Now, I know that debt plays a role. It's not the only role in inflation. But Mangustu centrally planned the economy to such a almost, uh, you could almost say, religious point that in a lot of ways, um, he was able to, what's it called, build the economy up in the social institutions. Because the literacy campaign, which he won a UN prize for, that was expensive. But that was the first step into developing a socialist society because Mengistu argued, you know, we can send, uh, do, you know, Czechoslovakian, Polish, Cuban doctors to teach people how to do a, uh, a colonoscopy. But if they can't read the manual, what's the point, you know? Yeah. So that was one of the things. And even now, worker cooperatives in Ethiopia, because of Mengistu, they still exist. In fact, cooperatives in each of the big two big regions, Amhara and Oromo, those are the two most populated. The cooperatives are responsible for the majority of the region's domestic food supply. Where, there were many cooperatives, don't get me wrong, Mike, under the um, housing co-ops were made into multinational were owned by like big shareholders in the TPLF who bought like big shares of land and became their own little landlords. Don't get me wrong. They did weaponize their, their new Chicago-style fucking economic ideals. But yeah. when they did that, they knew very damn well not to touch the most sacred ones, which is the Kabele Village Associations, the worker cooperatives, and some elements of the education system. Because even though Ethiopia did not have a lot of universities, we had 
kind of like Cuba, where you have a clinic in every neighborhood, you had you had uh, small startups for education and healthcare mm-hmm. that like taught people, hey, if you're walking in uh, uh, muddy waters, wear shoes, wear boots, you know, chama, which in Amharic means shoes, you know, because you're gonna get malaria, you're gonna get maggots, you're gonna get uh, worms, uh, you know, getting into your feet, you can cause all kinds of health problems. Uh, you should try to eat uh, lemons more often, certain uh, fruits so you don't get scurvy, that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, it's very rugged and rudimentary, but it's some things that easily kill Ethiopians even now. Yeah. You know? Like one big killer of Ethiopians is tuberculosis. You know, that's something that you die in the Wild West of, you know, in the 1800s, right. you know, as a cowboy. Yeah, you mentioned cholera earlier. It's like we don't even hear of these diseases here in the West, but it's like, you could make a simple change like that and easily save millions of lives, especially in such a dense country as you were mentioning. Not even that, Mike. How many times in a movie do you hear somebody in back in the day dying of uh, tuberculosis? Right. Even in a movie, that shit's rare. Yeah. And that's Ethiopia. We're still 70, 80 years behind the rest of the world. Like Ethiopia, in terms of GDP per capita, it was lower than the Mangustu government. In fact, from 1991 to 2007, the Mangustu era government had a higher standard of living than the first 16 years of the TPLF regime. And that's why during 2006, uh, the West was given this choice. Like, we can't, we, can, we need to pump this puppet up. Because like I told you, in 2005, we had the Kinjit movement. So what did the West do? We need to, they said, we need to preserve Mele Zanawi, the leader of the TPLF, by the way, the leader of Ethiopia from 91 to 2012. We need to preserve this guy. So, hey, IMF, give them $30 billion in loan. Right. And if you look up the GDP per capita of Ethiopia, it was half of what it was under Mangustu. Remember, Mangustu had a famine and Western encirclement and two military invasions by his neighbors. It's still outperforming. Whereas the first 16 years of TPLF, you had nothing. Literally no excuse not to develop it, you know? All right, well, I think that's probably as good of a place as I can think of to wrap it up. Plug your YouTube channel, like I said. Uh... For our listeners, it's Rootin' for Lenin again, Mark II. Rootin' without the G. So R-O-O-T-I-N and then F-O-R, four, and then Lenin. And then there should, in the profile pic, there should be a black and white photo of a guy, like a military guy. That's Mengistu. All right, well, thanks again, comrade. I appreciate it, Christian. Yeah, and thank you to all the listeners. There is an AK clone that the Chinese have. I don't know what it's called, but it looks like how a kid would draw an AK on a piece of paper. It's like a thin, you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Um, I'd have to look it up. Yeah, I can't remember off the top. I 70 something, but it looks like an AK. It, it's a Type 81? Yeah, Type 81. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how I describe it to people. Yeah, the Type 81 does not look great. It looks like a kid's drawing, and they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a charge. It looks like the French charge shot and an AK had a child. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if you made an AK, but even cheaper on a tighter budget. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I, the funny thing is, I don't understand why they didn't go to Albania for assistance because Albania already had, like, their own version of the AK 74, their own modernized version of the AKM. Yeah. Like, without the Soviet Union's help. So I just found that always a little weird, you know? Yeah. Like, China, they could have easily went to Albania and got them, you know, their modernized, like, I think it's uh, AKI, 
uh, AKs from Albania or whatever, because um, somehow they were able to switch to like I think it's the five four five yeah millimeter the seventy four. They had their own indigenous version of it, you know, that they developed without any contact with the USSR. Uh, that's pretty sick. Yeah, it's like China. Why didn't you just go to them? <laughs> you know, but uh, you know the Sino Albanian split. You know, yeah, stop them from that. In fact, the funny thing is, the Type eighty one was a byproduct of the Sino-Vietnamese War because the Vietnamese army were already using AKMs in mass numbers and they were just objectively superior to the Type 56. And the SKSs that they like, you know, I think it's the Type 76 or something. It's like an SKS with a AK magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So the average PLA soldier either had a Type 56 or one of those. And when they noticed, like, how structurally they were absolutely garbage in terms of jungle warfare. They captured a shit ton of like PKMs, RPDs, and like, uh, not, uh, no, RPKs. Yeah. And um, that's why the Type 81, there's only two configurations. There's like an assault rifle configuration, and there's like an LMG configuration. Because they were trying to replicate the RPK, which they couldn't get because, you know, the Sino-Soviet <laughs> split. So this is like, Ward, this is what happened the last time that we got together. like. I just yeah. said hello, and then dude just like went off for like two hours, and like that's great. Like I love it. This is for podcasting. Like this is a dream. Like you're just a content farm, dude, and I and I fucking love you for it. So thank you. We were in a pre-party formation, like I told you. You know the whole Russia-Ukraine shit. They didn't like what I had to say, and they just kind of kicked me to the. They called me a chauvinist. So I was like, okay, here's a, here's Lenin. I guess uh-huh. he's a chauvinist too. You fucking bread tube dumb dumb. Like well, you're not even gonna say the same thing about Lenin. I mean, if they're there. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, well, I didn't even get the chance to make this argument, but I used Lenin's defense of the Serbian independence movement during World War One. Like he argues that all socialists, both in Serbia and outside of Serbia, should support it, and it doesn't matter if bourgeois or imperialists are financing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't like in, in that doesn't like rule out whether or not it's legitimate or not. Like, Lenin writes about that. And I said, like, you know, whatever you thought, what it feel about Russia, I have solidarity with Lugansk and Donetsk because they are fighting a war that started 30 to 35 years ago with the fall of the Soviet Union. The Donetsk flag comes from the Inner Fronte movement in the eastern Ukraine, which was a movement to preserve the USSR, the blue, red, and black. That's where the flag comes from. Well, but I mean, before we get like too sidetracked with that, because Ward and I could probably go off on that as well. But it's like it is just like, yeah, yeah, you I mean, I think you realize just as well as us that any feelings that those people have towards Russia are just rooted in American propaganda. And they literally have no context yeah. pre February yeah. 2022, let alone back to 2014 or anything prior to that. Anything to do with like NATO expansion, like they don't care. They have no idea. Their shit, their shit started talking about they probably remember their first conversation about Russia crying about them on Twitter during the Sochi Olympics. Like, that's where their Russophobia comes from. Because, yeah, Russia is a national conservative country, but at the same time, it is, it is at its, you know, its own counterweight against imperialism. Well, what is the big country that is supporting the DPRK, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, etc.? It's Russia. We can criticize Russia, but that doesn't mean, like, it's an imperialist power. Because... When you look at how Russia exports capital, it's bun by oligarchs who are not in any alliance or at any benefit to the Russian state. Like the Dutch East India Company 
and the British East uh, Far East Company, they were serving a British capital, not the British state, but British capital. And British capital itself enriches the state in a way. They operate somewhat autonomously, but they're on the same team. Whereas the oligarchs in Russia, overwhelming majority of them are anti-Putin and are pro-Western. Mm-hmm. And I've been, you could almost say, I don't want to just dis- insult people, internally displaced since the fall of Yeltsin, you know? Mm-hmm. They're refugees of the, the, Yeltsin, or the Yeltsin kingdom, which I would like to call it, because if you read about the nepotism that took place in Yeltsin's Russia, it's fantastic that no one called Yeltsin a czar. Because, like, literally his whole family, his, 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 his people who cleaned or washed his dishes, people who were friends with him in the CPSU, they all got cushy gigs, and their kids did too in Russia. No, it's not a take that I've heard before, but it makes sense. There were a bunch of Eritreans trying to dox me. I told you in the DMs that the Eritrean diaspora are psychotic, the pro-NATO, anti-NATO Eritreans. They're like kind of like, I guess, like the political situation in Turkey. You have the Erdogan supporters that are passively supportive of U.S. imperialism because they're a NATO ally. And then there's the anti-Erdogan people who are like just pro-Western liberals. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they're not going to agree with you on anything. You know, they're going to attack you for a different reason. So with Eritrea, it's like they're either pro-Eforki, who's the leader there, and they support him under like pseudo-leftist uh, dogma. And the reason that it's kind of a problem, they they basically think that it's it's like it's like Cuba or DPRK. They sound like Gusanos, like the pro, like the... Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good. The, the anti-Eforki are Gusanos. The pro-Aforke are like uh, Gonzaloites. Yeah, like Aforke is the greatest anti-imperialist that the Horn of Africa has ever seen. Mm-hmm. Even though he's helping Saudi Arabia and UAE like bomb the Houthis. But he's anti-imperialist. Same thing with Turkish uh, pro-Erdogan. He's anti-imperialist, but he is arming Ukraine right now. Then Gazov with uh, Barakhtar drones. Yeah, he's anti-imperialist. Like, I get into so much shit with infrared people about Erdogan. It's like they think, oh... This all dates back to the destruction of the Ottoman Empire. What are you talking about? That's just aestheticism. You're fantasizing about aestheticism. And you're not, uh, you're not dialectical, you know? I, I'm a patriotic socialist, but, like, I'm the Ho Chi Minh Guevara, or no, no, Ho Chi Minh Castro or Mangustu, I guess, you know, the leader of socialist Ethiopia. I think I told him about it to you, Mike. I'm that kind of patriotic socialist, or a Stalin style. This shit with, like, them, it's like, we have to save the American empire from the republic. I mean, the republic from the empire. Yeah. That's the same shit that the PCF in France did in order to win over a chauvinistic leftist yeah. during the popular front. And it fucking failed. Because, like, all that base that you created went to the fascists. Like, that's literally what happened to the popular front. Though The ones that were not communists, that were the radical socialists, they just became... Um, I forgot. It's like the main French fascist part. I forgot what they were. But they became the Vichy, basically. Mm-hmm. They became the ideological vanguard of the Vichy. So that's that's just the whole thing. Oh, yeah. By the way, the Iraqi Communist Party is in a coalition with Sadr. Motada al-Sadr. Oh, nice. Yeah. They're in a coalition government. But the thing is, like, Sadr is literally... He's not going to even push on a single... They're trying to be like the human rights party of Iraq, like be socially progressive. They don't believe in Marxism-Leninism can be applied to Iraq. They want a democratic socialist revolution there. Good luck, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, good luck. Yeah, just don't ask for my support. Don't cry to solid net when uh, satirists throw you off of cliffs and you cucked multiple other Iraqi communist parties. Yeah. You know, when Sadr was having uh, his militias like rampage through cities. You wonder why they rep Gonzalo and Sakai so hard. That's what they do. All these buzz sloganeering is what I call it. Sloganeering. No wonder they love Gonzalo. No wonder they love ironically meme about loving the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. Marxism, Leninism for them is a fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Nobody will tolerate Pol Pot stands either. It's like Dragon Ball. My Marvel superhero is better than yours. Oh, I don't need to build socialism. I could just LARP all forever. <laughs> yeah, I'll just feel good about yelling at people online about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they build socialism. Oh, like, oh, my favorite communist party in the Imperium, the Kiki, they said this and that. Oh, they totally owned uh, the Donetsk Lugansk People's Republic because they said they were victims of Russian imperialism. Oh, we're the Kiki, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Within a NATO country, wow, how predictable. I didn't see that coming. It's kind of like the kid of a cop somehow believes in Blue Lives Matter. Like, what a crazy coincidence. No, KKE mm-hmm. hate the Donetsk Lugansk Liberation Movement, and they're within a NATO country. Wow. Didn't see yeah. that coming. Mm-hmm. So brave. Oh, you know what I do? One thing. You know what I do to piss off Maoists who attack Donetsk Lugansk? You know how they worship the MPA? They love them. They love them. Stand them. I always say, hey, man, do you ever find it a little bit interesting that CSUN lives comfortably in Denmark, a NATO country, and he never has to worry about getting extradited? That's really freaky. How'd that happen? How do you get it? I wonder what's, I wonder. And I, you know what I say? What's that weird uh, Dutch guy that's always with him, that's always tapping his shoulder when he's making a speech? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> trying to say anything, but I just want to, if you could explain that to me. Whatever server, even in Finball, Finnish Bolshevik server, they get livid. This is some real, this is like the deep Marxist like online shit that I love, dude. What do you do, bro? What do you do? Do you organize? Do you organize? Yeah. What are you in, dude? Collectively? What ties do you have to working class, man? Worker? They ask me that shit. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. What are you? <laughs> they say like, oh, I bet you're like one of Caleb Moppenite's your city builder, huh? No, I'm just saying, why is CSUN in Denmark safely from... <laughs> I mean, you don't hear that shit. Che Guevara wasn't in Toronto leading the revolution, dude. Like, right? I, mean, I wonder, there's, maybe there's a secret reason we're not thinking about right now why CSUN mm-hmm. is living comfortably in Denmark. You know? I can look this guy up. I actually don't even know who this is. He's the leader of the New People's Army of the Philippines. Oh, okay. He literally lives in Denmark, by the way. He lives in a NATO country. Use that against Maoists when they piss you off. I mean, hey, the Aroma Liberation Front, that's the the political wing of the OLA. They have an office in D.C. So make that, interpret that any way you want to. And by the way, it's only like, it's a five-minute drive from the FBI headquarters. So make that any, and by the way, the yeah. DC mayor gave the OLF a platform to have their rally when people were protesting police brutality. Like, I think one girl, she got a tear gas canister to her eye and she died, I think in DC. <laughs> but the OLF, an, an actual terrorist group, gets political representation. Interesting. Interesting. I could meet CSUN in Denmark, just run up to him and be like, yo, 
What's your opinion on the Dutch proletariat? <laughs> Communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Tenantless Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. It's Tenant, I'm here with Ward, he, him. And our guest, rooting for Lennon, he, him as well. How's it going, man? Welcome. What's up, guys? What's up? What's up? Yeah, I guess we're talking about Ethiopia. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's the topic for tonight. So, the last time we spoke was a couple months ago. And like you said, it's been a tumultuous couple months. And when we were talking the last time, there was still, like, an ongoing conflict. And... You've told me that since then, the conflict has ended because I take way too fucking long to edit episodes. I mean, by the way, I have COVID right now and I'm podcasting for you people, so you better appreciate it. But uh, that's why I sound weird. Oh, I'm super appreciative. I don't think anyone's complaining, Mike, but all right. No, no, I mean like the listeners. I'm talking about the listeners who who never give me shit about like being late with episodes, but I just pretend that I'm letting them down and I I feel bad about it anyway. So anyway. Yeah, you're just making enemies. (laughs) (laughs) You're just making enemies. Manufacturing just then. (laughs) Yeah. This is the, uh, the Ethiopia update. So, yeah, if you could just sort of pick up where you left off the last time and uh, just go off, buddy. All right, so here's what happened. They actually pushed deeper in our last conversation, and they were about, I think, 50 kilometers or 50 or 100 miles, I think. I don't know how to translate kilometers to miles or whatever, but basically they were a eight-mile drive from the capital, and the war was, like, looking very grim. There was a, like I told you last time in the last episode, there was a leaked dossier, like Zoom call um, in a dossier of David Yamamoto. He's the person who helped the TPLF become normalized amongst the U.S. security state. And he was having a conversation with TPLF, which is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, for people to be reminded. There were Tigrayan activists and TPLF adjuncts who used to work as liaisons between the U.S lobbying establishment and political establishment to the TPLF itself, and not not to mention former government ministers of the TPLF regime. It's kind of like, you know, when you find out that Guaido is speaking to U.S. senators on the low Hmm. about getting political recognition, you know, in Venezuela. But the TPLF, they were talking with Yamamoto, and look up Jeff Pierce. Jeff, it regularly spelled two Fs, Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E. He has a one-and-a-half-hour video of them, of elite call, where Yamamoto talks about what Ethiopia will be in a post-Abi, post-Abi Ahmed, who is the president of Ethiopia. What will it look like, and how can the U.S. benefit from it? So mind you, guys, it's not that he's worried that Ethiopia is going to be unstable. What is a post-Abi Ahmed Ethiopia benefit the United States? That was the conversation they were having. And, it, and just to remind you how demented the U.S. security state in the U.S., apparatchiks, the American apparatchiks that work in the government. He's Jeff Propulsion on Twitter, just for our listeners, if you want to find this yes, guy. Yes, Jeff Propulsion, too. Now, mind you, he has some center-right points of view, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like a broken clock. Sometimes a broken clock will tell you the, the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a good anti-imperialist, I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. especially his takes on Russia. But what I was going to say is, is um, when... It became very apparent that Ethiopians were either going to lose whatever progress or even whatever 
even experiment of post-TPLF rule they were going to have. So what happened was the Afar region, which is east, uh, southeast of Tigray, where the war started in, and Amara, which is southwest, both of them allowed a nationalist civilian citizen militias in Amara. They're called the Fano, which means like a single, like a bachelor, like a young man. Mm-hmm. And the Afar, they were called Ugagumo. Ugagumos are the, they are, they come back to the Afar nomadic culture and society. They actually date back to the warriors of the Harla Sultanate, which used to be the Ottomans' main exporting partner in the region. And they were responsible for facilitating trade between the Christian and Islamic world. Very influential. And that Ugagumo tradition of this almost like vanguard militia that protects the village, protects the cities. That's where Ugagumo dates from. Whereas the Fano, they come back to the pro-Ethiopianist, pan-Ethiopianism, kind of like pan-Arabism in a way, like in terms of aesthetic and ideology. They're kind of like an Ethiopian equivalent to Bolivarianism in Venezuela. Okay. There is pan-Ethiopian, all-Ethiopian nationalist movement that was based in Amara called the Fano. And they used to work with the Oromo Kero, which was their counterpoint, their counterpart in the Oromo region. Because Kero, just like Fano, means upright man. Kind of like the name Burkina Faso, you know, with Sankara. Yeah. And the Fanos, they became a militia after 2018 when Abi came to power. They originally fought the Abi government. They used to have like a semi-Viet Cong-style guerrilla war with the, with the Abi regime, which led to them even forcing the federal army to use artillery, which, you know, led to civilians being killed. But at the same time, the Fano... They also have problems with reactionary tendencies within their movement. You know, examples of Amara nationalism leading to, let's say, targeted killings of the Kamat in 2019, where 58 of them were murdered. And that kind of tarnished the Tapano reputation amongst the Amara masses. But still, they were always seen as this spontaneous opposition to Abi's hold in Amara, which, by the way, is the second most populated region in Ethiopia behind the Oromo. We're kind of like... Like, Oromia in Ethiopia is California. We're Texas, you know, in terms okay. of our relevance to the nation state. Um, and it's a good comparison because, you know, California, it's a large chunk of America's GDP, just like Oromia. But um, the Fanos, they start to claim Western Tigray, which has been debated on whether it's Tigray or Amara. And then that debate, and, and not to mention the Maikadra massacre, where even Amnesty International and the UN investigated, showed that the TPLF killed hundreds of Amara people. Um, the Ethiopian Human Rights Council, which is a NGO, a non-state NGO that's not funded by the State Department, that's what I mean by non-state, it's not funded by any nation state or any uh, federal agency of any country, they pointed the death toll to be 1,300. The UN and Amnesty said about between five to 800 people. But regardless, that massacre caused at least 100,000 Amaras to flee for their lives from Welkite, which is what many Amaras call Western Tigray. So the Fano, they ended up having this truce with the Amara regional government and the federal government, and they took part in fighting against the TPLF. And as a result, they have become a target by the federal government because, like I told you, they're a spontaneous force. Abi does not like political competition. He's your classical neoliberal African, you know, dictator, where, you know, his party magically wins 99 to 100% of the vote. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. He's basically a, an even less a less competent, less successful version of Yuri Museveni in Uganda, to be honest with you. Because at least Museveni, he did some policies to curb AIDS in his country. Abi has nothing other than the Nile Dam, which was already in conception during the Mungustu, the socialist era. It was created, started construction under Malazanawi under the TPLF era, which, by the way, was funded by Western loans. Because it was like, we were like the Yugoslavia of, Ethiopia, of uh, Africa. Not because of our ethnic tension, but because like Tito, Meles, the TPLF president, he pumped Ethiopia with loans and tricked the Ethiopians and global economists that that was development. Just like Yugoslavia, you know, they say, oh, it's this nice little uh, resort in the Iron Curtain. Like, no, it was because the IMF pumped them with loans. That's why they were doing well. Right. In Ethiopia... Same thing with the TPLF. We had loans pumping our GDP, which gave the illusion of growth. So Abi, without a lot of stuff that he can claim, and not to mention the Amaras who felt marginalized, he felt intimidated by the Fano. So every once in a while, the Amara Liu Hail, which is the regional special force, that's what Liu Hail in Amharic translated to English, a close way translates to. Mm-hmm. They started fighting the war more extensively than the Ethiopian military. And it was kind of like where in Syria, you know, in Syria, the National Defense Force, they do the battles and the Syrian army backs them up. With the Amara region, what happened was the Fano, which is the citizen militias, and the Liu Haya, which is like the National Guard, they would do the bulk of the fighting. And the Ethiopian federal military would back them up with airstrikes, artillery, etc. And an Afar region, unlike the Amaras, they were way more unified. So the president of uh, Afar, his name is Awal Arba. He gives full clearance for Auga Gumo to organize, and they work hand-in-hand hand with the Afar Liuhail, their National Guard. Mm-hmm. And they completely defeat the TPLF over and over and over. In fact, even a lot of us, like I'm, I'm, I'm Amara and Grage, but you know, I, I like to identify sometimes as a little bit more Amara than Grage sometimes. But even as Amaras, we were shocked by how well the Afars did in defeating the TPLF. That it even caused friction with the federal government because Awal Arba would actually create these big media exposés shitting on Fana. Fana is the national news of Ethiopia. It's our BBC. About how they never mentioned how Uga Gumo and Afar forces were kicking the shit out of TPLF. And how the ENDF, basically the Ethiopian National Defense Force, the federal military, they basically took all the credit. Literally, the one thing the TPLF did is they showed off the prisoners of war, which kind of showed like, you would only see Ethiopian federal soldiers. You never see Afar or Amara or regional forces there. Only ENDF, because the ENDF, it's a conscripted army. And you know how that usually goes in a civil war situation. Yeah. Especially when you have a very weak economy. So Amaras, they use mostly attrition to fight the TPLF. Because one, they don't, the Amaras were, have been historically deliberately underfunded because during the TPLF's era, they were seen as politically unreliable because we were the most, we had the most likely chance of having a pan-Ethiopianist position than the ethnic federalism, which is the main ideology of the Ethiopian government. So our regional forces were under-equipped on purpose in a lot of ways. A lot of our commanders, if they were good in battlefield, they would be magically thrown in jail on anti-terrorism charges. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I don't want to use another historical example, but basically it's this. Abi does not want a populist military figure to come from Amara. 
He does not want them to have a boulevard. He does not want them to have a, a Zhukov, you know, to mm. his style. No, no, I wouldn't say Zhukov to Stalin, but basically what Western historians like to say about Zhukov and Stalin. He doesn't want a military contemporary to walk the walk and talk the talk and challenge his power in the second most populated country of Ethiopia. Not to mention 30% of Ethiopia's GDP comes from Amara region. So imagine losing control of that. Yeah. He can lose control. He can afford to lose control. Tigray, they only produce 6% of the GDP. And they only have about 4% of the population, you know? Don't, don't hesitate to use whatever historical examples you feel like. If you want to relate yeah. things to America, that's, that's perfectly fine for our probably mostly American audience. I mean, yeah. Amara region, they start winning small victories in southern Ethiopia. And the Afar, they start pushing into Tigray. Their army even attacks the capital, Tigray, Mekale, and these like hit-and-run attacks, destroying their infrastructure, destroying their logistics. Because one thing you have to remember, guys, is that children and boomers like to study war by battles. People with an IQ above 70 study war by logistics. So the Afars <laughs> understood that if you want to defeat a significantly larger force, which is the TPLF, you have to destroy their logistics, like the Viet Cong did with America. You have to terrorize them. So when they tried to capture the Ethiopia Djibouti Railway, which is in the 80% of our exports is coming there, it's in Afar. So what they did was they attacked the TPLF, not at their troops, but, you know, their logistical trucks where, you know, you have 80 troops, 20 of them, smelly, sweating up, sitting there. They would have landmines. They would have nail bombs massacring them on the roads. And that it has a psychological effect. Mind you, they don't have artillery. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they make it extremely personal. So they'll have five, ten-man teams mowing down the TPLF wherever they were. Kind of like some armed groups in Syria, whether the military or the rebels, they show up all the dead soldiers, all the weapons they captured. Mm -hmm. And it got so bad to where it said that the TPLF lost as many as 10 out of the 50 tanks that they took from the Ethiopian army, just ambushing them. Because it was so gruesome that the Afars fought that many of these Tigrayans, they would just jump out of their tanks and give up. Jesus. You know, their own way, there's a joke in Afar that the biggest supplier of the Afar regional forces is the TPLF itself. They're our biggest supporter and our biggest detractor. But um, the Amaras, they fight through attrition because they don't have that strategic intelligence in their military because every general, like, let's say, Teferi Mamo, no, Tefaso Mamo, he was the general of Amara Liuhail. He was responsible for pushing the TPLF multiple times. And just this week, he was thrown in prison under anti-terrorism charges. And the Ethiopian government had a private trial, which even by Ethiopia's bullshit legal system is, is improper. But most Amaras knew that this was like a punishment for being like, you know, kind of like Smedley Butler, if you know who that is, the Marine Corps general who exposed him. Yep. Yeah, he's the Smedley Butler of Amara, the racket, okay. the uh, Ethiopian political machine. And the problem that Abi, he allowed Eritrea role in fighting the TPLF. And there were many instances in Amara when the Amaras were fighting the TPLF Eritreans would loot, hack Amara towns and cities, and the Fano would fight them. And guess who would defect, protect the Eritreans? The Ethiopian Federal Army. So it would rapidly demoralize the Amaras when it came to fighting TPLF. Because one, they have the Ethiopian government repressing them in their struggle against the TPLF. You had the Amara regional government in their own opportunistic way 
against the citizen militias like the Fano. And then you had the TPLF raping and murdering. Like even Amnesty International was finding mass graves. Um, there's a guy, his name is Jamal Countess. Countess is, uh, to spell it, is uh, Jamal with an E-J-E. Countess, C-O-U-N-T-E-S-S. He's an American, African-American, you know, anti-imperialist and photojournalist. He's in Ethiopia. And he documents how there were dozens of mass graves of women between 12 to 19 years old being raped, having their ovaries punctured. Like the TPLF, they had a reign of terror in the areas that they held. It was so bad that the U.S. had to do damage control and admit that the reason Amaras were starving at a disproportionate rate was that the TPLF were literally looting food storage facilities. Even the, the World Food Program, they stopped all operations in Amara because they pointed out that the Tigrayans were just pillaging everything. Mm-hmm. And the trucks that the U.N. would use would be stolen from the U.N., given to the Tigrayans. So in Amara region, in Kambolcha, where we have, like, you know, the UAZ, the Russian truck, and the Kamaz, we have a factory there. They smashed it to a million pieces. They took all the trains, all the trucks, and now they use it as logistical trucks for the terrorist forces, the TPLF, which they basically kind of like Russia after the Eastern Front. They completely destroyed our infrastructure. Whereas Afar, because of how massive it is, you know, it's the size of like Maryland and uh, eastern part of Virginia combined, but it has the population of Delaware. So because of its dense desert that it has, it was easy for the Afars to keep all of their economic infrastructure intact, which is why they, they fared much better against the TPLF than the Amaras. We were more urbanized and we had more roads. So it was easy for the TPLF to capture city after city after city. But the Amaras were able to successfully kick the TPLF out of the capital. And just like the Afars, the Ethiopian federal government took all of the credit for it. So, for example, in a place named Nefas Mucha, where um, uh, TPLF were raping and murdering, the Amara Liu Hail pushed them out of the city. But if you look at Ethiopian federal media, you only see Ethiopian federal troops there, not the Amara Fano, not the Amara regional forces. So you see the constant pattern. A lot of the war was given credit to the government, even though the government, most of those soldiers are going to pee their pants, give up or run away, you know? So when the war gets very ugly, and Abi understands, like I told you earlier, when the war got really ugly, they were only eight hours away from the capital. Abi then, in a sense of PR, by the way, Abi is a former soldier himself. He puts on the fatigues and he says, I'm going to lead the military myself. He kicks out all of these bureaucratic generals that come from the TPLF era, and he starts leading the war himself, like literally battle by battle, uh, troop movement by troop movement. And that leads to a massive morale boost within the army. And what ends up happening is he ends up destroying three months of gains that the TPLF had, and he retakes it within a week and a half. So he completely curb stomps the TPLF all the way back to Tigray. Oh, yeah. He had a Stalingrad moment. I'm going to be on. I don't like it, but I'll be honest. <laughs> that was amazing thing that he pulled off. Yeah. And a lot of Tigrayans will cope. Well, I'm not saying Tigrayan people. Like, let's, uh, the better word is the Wayani. Kind of like how we say Kusano. Mm. Diaspora people who have shitty opinions. The Wayanis, they say, oh, oh, Abi, he received Russian or Orion and Viking drones. He's received Iranian Mohar drones, Mohar 1, Mohar 5 drones. He received UAE 
drones. He used to receive Chinese wing-long drones. That's why he won the war. Okay, he's the leader of a military in a country. Isn't it smart to use a weapon that your enemy has no training in, in operating? Because remember, the TPLF between 1991 and 2018 were the military of Ethiopia. Mm. So you can't use your Air Force because all of the air defense that Ethiopia has is in Tigray and it's under TPLF control. You can't use your army, your tanks, because those same ENDF soldiers, they know how to destroy those, let's say, T-72Bs, T-72UA1s, which is like a, a cheap Ukrainian upgrade. Basically, they take that coaxial machine gun you see on the top, which the commander can use. They just put it like a remote system where he doesn't have to peek out and use it. He can just use it while he's inside the tank. But the armor's just shit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a blanket with a slingshot could pierce the armor. That's how bad the tank is. But that's because uh, when the TPLF was pro-Western, we had to buy and maintain our Soviet equipment, our Russian-made equipment by Ukraine. So it had problems because Abi government refused to modernize the weapons he had. So in a lot of ways, a lot of those equipment were poorly maintained. A lot of them were left behind. TPLF would repair them and reuse them against us. Hmm. And plus, these are ex-soldiers, you know, the TPLF. So they know they don't even need to be trained. So that's how much of a cataclysmic loss it is to lose a tank intact. And the Afars, they have to trade in the tanks that they capture from the TPLF and give it to the ENDF, who will, let's say, give them 7 by 6 to ammo, like maybe 30 tons of it. You know what I mean? For every vehicle they capture. They never trust the Ethiopian regional forces to, one, buy weapons internationally, and two, build their own military industries. They don't trust them. And what happens is now, while Abi is pushing the Tigrayans back, mind you, the Eritreans, they're gone. They're only in northern Tigray. That leads to a morale boost. And there's another part of this war that people don't pay attention to, which is Aromania, the Aromo region, where the Aromo Liberation Army, they controlled 38% of the country. The only reason they were able to hold territory is because the Tigrayans, the TPLF, was an existential threat. So... Any war, just like the Russian Civil War, all these ethnic rebellions were only successful because, you know, Germany, America, etc. were arming the whites, the white Russians. Mm. And then when those Russian whites were defeated, just like in Russia, these small ethnic armies, they start to whittle away at facing the full wrath of the Red Army. Mm. When Tigray is completely pushed from Amara all the way to their border, the Oromo Liberation Army slowly will losing their territory that they gained. One thing I have you to remember, if you look up Aroma Liberation Army BBC, they had a big media like, we're only two hours away from the capital. We can see the presidential palace from our, our binoculars. Uh, Abi, his government are all in uh, Dubai. They're not in Ethiopia. That's 3D CGI. He's not there. And just like that. And what it tells you is the only thing that the Aroma Liberation Army had going was that the Ethiopian government was in a full-blown war in Tigray. Now, mind you, in Aromania, the Aromo regional government are like, it's kind of like Republicans and the KKK. Mm-hmm. They have to performatively fight them once a blue moon, but in reality, it's the same ideology. Right. Because the Aromo regional government, well, just look up uh, regions of Ethiopia. Look at the Ethiopian map. Aromania is massive. Now, there is the southern SNNPR. That's the Southern Nations and Nationalities region. They have a massive, massive dispute with Aromania. Parts of the middle, northern, eastern part of Southern Nationalities region is claimed by Aromania. 
And the problem is, is that the OLA have successfully captured parts of the border. And the reason this is, is because the Aroma Leohile, the regional officers, ideologically agree with the OLA. I mean, imagine if you told uh, Sheriff, uh, what was that sheriff, that racist sheriff um, that was friends with uh, Steven Seagal? Arpaio? He's a friend of Trump. Yep. Imagine telling Arpaio to storm the, the Ottomwaffen hideout. Yeah. You think, how many of those cops do you think are going to, like, not do it? Yeah. So what happens is all of these Aroma Leohile, they have a high attrition, not because they're dying, but because, one, they're deserting, and, two, they're defecting. They're even members of Ethiopia's Republican Guard, which is our kind of like the Syrian Republican Guard, a special forces unit. The Aroma Liberation Army, or Shani, that's the slur. That's the slang for them. The Shani, all they have to do is wait, like the IRA. They don't have to control territory. They just have to be a constant irritant to the Ethiopian federal government. Mm-hmm. Now, when Abi pushes Gilef out, because that's the, that's the second part we got to cover, what ends up happening when Abi does this big populist move to lead the army and he successfully defeats the TPLF, um, basically what ends up happening is he has an aroma insurgency that he has not touched. He's allowed the completely relaxed Oromo regional government to handle it, and they've done a shit job. I mean, 38% of Oromo is controlled by them. I mean, there was a um, uh, geography, like, student. They did, like, an estimate about the size, approximate, of how much Oromo Liberation Army controlled of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And they said that it was equivalent to the size of, like, Austria. That's, like, that's how big of a territory. Jesus. Or, like, the size of Florida. If you were to chump it up like a piece of Play-Doh into one, like, one little uh, shape, one on that. Yeah. What I wish he could have done is done what the Fidel did in the Escambre, which is just develop the region, and those radicals would be seen as enemies of development. Like, do what Ho Chi Minh did and do what the Vietnamese did outside of Saigon. You basically try to fix the contradiction, internal contradictions and problems in their society so that you're seen as the progressive force. Like, that, that's the best thing you're going to do, because you can kill them. All it takes is for one edgy Romo on a VPN to tell his buddies, like, let's do it again. Mm-hmm. It's like white supremacist groups. We can talk, and we can have air quotes, like, safe spaces about white supremacy forever. If you don't attack the economic systems, which is what I critique on Abion, because he, when, like I even told you, he's a neoliberal. He doesn't believe in state-run social safety nets. He believes that the market is going to fix Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking pathetic. Because it's like, you want neoliberalism. You want like what Naomi Klein warns about shock therapy. You want that on steroids for Ethiopia. So you basically want the same shitty economics which got the TPLF chased out of power, but you want to use it in a pan-Ethiopian unity. It's like one of those ML parties in Europe that don't believe in Marxism-Leninism, but they still have the logo, the hammer and sickle. They have the, yeah. the, the, the vocabulary. It's like, come on, dude. Just, just call yourself like a, like a suck dem already. Like, stop. You're embarrassing yourself. You know what I mean? It's like the Communist Party in Moldova or Iraq. Like, you guys are just, you guys are just holding on to the prestige of the name, you know? We never even heard of either. Back to Ethiopia. We understand, like you, Ward, and I, that when you're fighting against reactionary terrorism, you have to develop the society. You have to give them something that's going to make them a Ohio soldier. It's going to make them work in the factories. Because why don't they just go to the bush and be abandoned? 
Banda. That's what we Ethiopians call it. He can, they can just be Banda forever. Kill Amaras, get their anger out on Amara people, because we're the evil Neftenya, which is like the N-word for us, for them, uh, the settler, because they blame the way Ethiopia is on us Amaras, because we're pan-Ethiopianists. But the thing is, most of Amaras, they look to their Ethiopianism in like the Mangustu, the Derg era. It's like, it's like a civic nationalism that somewhat leans left. And like, for example, like there were thousands of Ethiopians, you can Google this, that went to the Russian embassy after the war in Tigray died down to fight against the Ukrainian government. Russia literally made a public statement, like asking the Ethiopian government, like, please tell these Ethiopians to go home. Don't need them. There was like 7,000 Amaras standing outside the embassy wanting to fight. Crazy. That's how anti-imperialist the pan-Ethiopianist camp is, you know? Like when we were winning... There was a big rally of anti-imperialism with Xi Jinping, Putin, Iranian flags, DPRK flags, etc., congratulating them as anti-imperialist heroes, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yes, there is a reactionary monarchistic wing to Ethiopianism, but there's also a anti-imperialist progressive element to Ethiopianism, or what we call Ethiopia wheat. Ethiopia wheat? Ethiopia wheat. I know. It sounds like Ethiopia weed. Yeah. It's just Ethiopian, like, with I-W-E-T, Ethiopia weed. And it's a complete condemnation of this ethnic system that Ethiopia has. And a lot of Ethiopianists, we don't believe in Abi because he was supposed to dismantle the ethnic federalist system Mm -hmm. and a pan-Ethiopian system. And then what Abi responded was, one, if you have the Derg flag, which is the Ethiopian flag, the green, yellow, red, without the pentagram, you were going to be killed by the police. There's videos of them with APCs gunning down protesters, even shooting at churches. It has images of like, you know, the El Salvadorian civil war where the priests would protect social activists and you'd have these right-wing death squads like mowing down the priests, mowing down the the people they hit. Because the church tried to intervene and protect these people. And what the Ethiopian government was like, you better have a blue and white flag. If you have a green, yellow, and red flag, we're going to rip it off the seams. On your church, because the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, even though it's historically reactionary, in times of peril, it was always a unifying force. Like during the Mussolini's invasion, the Orthodox Church refused to stand down to the fascists, to where when the uh, fascists committed the Yekka 12 massacre, where they killed 90,000 people in Antis, you know, under the orders of Mussolini, the first person they killed was Abuna Petros, who, was a, who hid anti-fascist partisans, because he refused to give up the location of the man that killed, almost killed Graziani, you know, Mussolini's viceroy that occupied the, who, had the, who led the occupational government in Ethiopia. So the Orthodox Church was also attacked. And there's a historical precedent as to why. That's why I mentioned, you know, Mussolini's, his war against the Orthodox Church. And that's why I made the connotation to, you know, the, the Catholic Church in El Salvador during the Civil War. Like, that's the image I want you guys to understand it from. And what ended up happening was now the OLA, the Roman Liberation Army, they only control a, a tenth of the territory they have. Now Abi is cracking down two regions. Now, hold on, hold on, you're breaking up a bit again. Say that last part again. He's cracking down on two regions, which are what? But the TPLF, Afar and Amara. Okay. Now the Fano are being targeted by Abi. Even the Fano commanders, the best ones, are being targeted. So right now in Amara region, they're trying to stoke religious tension. And there is a Fano leader. His name is Hassan Karimu. He's an Amara Muslim. 
he led a jihad against the TPLF. And now the Amara regional government is trying to paint him as like this Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, jihadist figure, Muslim fundamentalist figure. And they use his speeches like he was demanding. He said, we have to lead a jihad against the TPLF. They're destroying the unity. They're destroying the religious unity of Ethiopia. But they twisted it to make him seem like he's a Wahhabist. And now the Amara regional government, they're murdering Muslims. And now they're targeting him, leading a Muslim rebellion. The reason Karimo was targeted is Karimo, because he is, a, as an Amhara Muslim, they have ties to the Muslim Afars. He helped the Afars defeat the TPLF on the Amhara-Afar border. He was a threat to Abiy. And now Abi, he's filling in for the lack of Amara and Afars to fight for his government with Eritreans. There are now Eritreans in every, in every major Ethiopian city fighting for Abi's behalf because he doesn't trust his own people anymore, you know? And now, with the Fano being persecuted, the Eritreans no longer have any opposition. So now Eritrean soldiers, they're looting, robbing stores and businesses and villages in Amara and Afar. Even the pan-Ethiopian opposition, there's a woman, her name is Hamela Aragawi. She had an interview with Rania Kalik. You know her, right? Breakthrough News? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you watch her shit on Ethiopia, Rania Kalik, God bless her. She did so well. One of the reasons, the secret reason, is she fucking stops talking to Hamela Aragawi. Hamela Aragawi, she's controlled by Eritrean diaspora groups that are loyal to the Eritrean government. She had a big ass falling out with the TPLF diaspora. Because she tried to pump money out of them through Patreon. So then she said, you know what? I'm a Tigrayan. I'm going to be the Tigrayan Candace Owens and support the Ethiopian government. You know how, like, the Candace Owens types, I'm going to tell you the truth about racism. I'm going to tell you the truth about Wayane. You know what I mean? And a lot of Ethiopianists started to notice, like, her shit doesn't stink. Her shit does, in fact, stink. She's just not, in fact, shit gold, as we have been advertised. Like my aunt. She put money into her Patreon. She took advantage of this, like, mid-40s, active, somewhat retired, but somewhat not employed, like, group of Ethiopian Americans. Mm -hmm. And she pumped money out of them, you know? Like the wine moms, taxi drivers, the Ethiopian store owners and employees, like those people, mm -hmm. the real proletarianized Ethiopian adults. That, like, let's say came to Ethiopia 30 years ago when they were 20, and now they're in their mid-40s and 50s. And as a result, the younger group, like me in their 20s, we saw the bullshit from afar. And now there's, like, a semi-civil war, like a political rivalry or polarization between the pro-Eritrean Ethiopian nationalists and the anti-Eritrean. And the pro-Eritreans, they're, like, cheerleading Abi in completely wiping out the Fano movement. They're trying to destroy it. And now they've slowly created their own proxy of Fano, a pro-government Fano, basically. In fact, it's so depressing. Like, a lot of these Eritreans and these, Eri and, uh, these like, absolute cuckolds to Eritrea, like these fake Ethiopian nationalists, they tried to compare it to Stalin, like, you know, the de-Kozakization with the Cossacks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They tried to compare it to that. It's like, that's not comparable, dude. <laughs> you are a citizen militia that came from a movement against neoliberalism in Ethiopia. The Cossacks were enforcers of the feudal system in Russia. They're not even remotely comparable. Yeah. So that's what happened in Amara. In Afar, how well 
the uh, Afars defeated the TPLF, and given there's less baggage with Afar, with the Ethiopian federal government, because in Amara region, the first real Abi was in Amara. There's a general, his name is Tismayu Tiziji. He was an Amara nationalist, and he was brought out of prison when the TPLF threw him in jail under a fake charge, just like Abi being an anti-terrorism law, under an anti-terrorism law. And he led a speech saying, you know, Amaras, we have to stand up for ourselves. This ethnic federalism is a conspiracy against our community. It's normal at funding. You know, this ethnic-based system. Our regions are divided by ethnicity. And one problem with ethnic federalism is that Amara region has more special autonomous zones for certain groups than any other region in Ethiopia. So Amaras, we don't get special representation in Aromania. And for my Grage half, because I'm half Grage, we, there's Grage relatives I have, they live in Aromania. They have no special representation. So for a lot of Amaras, they see the ethnic federalism as a way to isolate Amara people. So kind of like how a lot of ethnic Russians were repressed in the post-Soviet republics, you know what I mean? Targeted, blamed for a lot of the problems, you know? Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was that Tziji was accused of murdering the Amara regional president, which, by the way, was never proven. He went on the run, and then he was killed by a, uh, by a special forces unit within the army. Mm-hmm. And since then, Tziji's message... Tsitsiji was like slowly, in order to win over popular support, the Amara regional government quietly rehabilitated him. His photo everywhere, you saw his portrait everywhere, his, his quotes written in like, kind of like in Fool's Gold in Ethiopian government buildings. You saw a quiet rehabilitation and even acceptance of his point of view. And remember, this was a co-opting of his image to win over Amaras to fight in the Liu Hail, mm-hmm. which at one point in time were repressing Amaras, you know? Because the commanders of um, the Liu Hail were the same people helping the TPLF destroy Amara representation, Amara movements like the Fano. So it's like, it's messy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's like post-war Germany, you know? And then you have these neo-Nazi movements in Eastern Germany, Western Germany, but... Some of the soldiers on both sides that you're going to have, or policemen, some of them were Wehrmacht, some of them were Gestapo, some of them were, you know, Mm -hmm. and they may not want to arrest somebody because that was their boss and they were complicit. Like, Avi will never put the TPLF on trial for the genocide they committed in Ethiopia. Yeah, because guess what? He was the head of the secret police, entirety of the TPLF regime. He would have to put himself under trial. That's not going to happen. Yeah, he's just going to token, he's going to have token criticism of them and have a token opposition figure that he can control, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the problem in Ethiopia. Now that Abi has militarily defeated the TPLF, his main goal is to repress the Amara opposition, oppress the Oromo. Some of, there is a real genuine Oromo opposition outside the Oromo Liberation Army that I completely can agree with. Other than, you know, the reactionary OLA. In Afar, he knows that he cannot conventionally defeat them. Because the Afars are united now. The Afars even threaten government. If you set one air-trained soldier here, you will not be allowed to conduct your war in Tigray on Afar land. Because Eastern Eritrea used to be part of Afar. And Afars were forced to be part of Eritrea with the help of the UN and Egypt and America. So a lot of Afars have a bone to pick with Eritrea. So given that 
in terms of aesthetic, in terms of ideology, in terms of material conditions. You can't even wage a propaganda war against the Afar region or the Ugagumo like you do with the Fano. Because remember, the Fano used to be an insurgent force that fought the Ethiopian government, whereas the Ugagumo and the Afar government were always loyal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you have a war with the Afar state, all you have to do is block the Ethiopian railway and Ethiopia's economy will collapse. So what Abi has done is he put all of his attention on repressing the Fano movement in Amara region and emboldening Eritrea. Because Eritrea sees an unstable Ethiopia as a as a economic and lucrative opportunity. The same way Saudi Arabia looks at an unstable Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, etc. Those countries get super poor. You can exploit their immigrants that come to your country as a surplus labor force. Like just like how in Saudi Arabia and UAE, a lot of these Yemeni, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Iraqi, Syrian employees, they will work for anything. Why? Because the UAE and Saudi Arabia have made sure that their countries are economically unviable to live in. So they don't care if you burn boiling hot water on them, throw them off of cliffs, etc. Eritrea wants to repeat that model onto Ethiopia. They want Ethiopia to be weak and poor so that they can be the people that keeps Ethiopia in line. The same way that Saudi Arabia is who the West trusts to keep Yemen in line, the Yemeni people. Just like how America keeps Israel as the country that puts the Arabs in line, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I was getting earlier. It's just like, it's it's always the same pattern. It's always some colonial interest that's like operating behind the scenes or just outwardly and then doing it for some kind of mineral or labor wealth that they can get. And usually in the case of, and this seems to be the new way, if it's not actual mineral wealth, then it is just like keeping someplace completely destabilized, keeping everybody poor and desperate so they can just extract their Bro. labor wealth like this. 20, I think 20% of the coffee, I don't know the quote, but Ethiopia is one of the top 10 leading exporters of beef and coffee and has a population of 125 million, a very young population. It's a huge labor force. You can take your bet. I mean, look at how richer countries like Brazilian companies, how they look at Colombia, Venezuela, uh, labor, mm-hmm. when those countries are unstable. By the way, for different reasons, which we both know. They look at them as potential surplus labor force. And that's the thing is, Eritrea is the first country that does not serve necessarily Western interests, but the interests of the Gulf Arab states that are backing him. Because Eritrea's GDP is literally, I think, one and a half billion dollars. And one third of that comes from Saudi and UAE banks that fund his entire government is funded by one bank in Dubai. Yeah. Like, I'm not joking, dude. There is a guy in a Khalifa in Dubai that literally has the hands of God in terms of deciding how life is in Eritrea. Right. I mean, in Qatar, which was the, the original financer way, way back in 2010 to 2018 for the Eritreans, they almost caused the Eritrean economy to collapse when they tried to force Eritrea to pay $500 million in, uh, in loans that they gave them. And Eritrea had to plead to UAE. They even had to change their whole foreign policy to satisfy the UAE. So, for example, they built a drone base that they used to bomb the Houthis from Eritrea. And because of the base that they have, the UAE has a military base in Eritrea. The UAE makes sure that the Eritrean nation state is stable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like America, their bases in, let's say, Korea, Japan. You know, it's like, you know about the U.S. program of Plan Columbia? 
how the U.S. military and the industrial complex invested into the Colombian state. In an inadvertent way, they ended up making it slightly more stable, but just to serve American interests. No. That's what... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was called Plan Colombia. Basically, they pumped the, the Colombian military and the state with so much money that it, it gave them a surplus of capital to develop the state, Jesus. which practically barely existed. It was called Plan Colombia. It was under, uh, I think, Reagan. But in regards to Eritrea, the moment UAE or Saudi Arabia loses interest, that country is not going to exist. You know, yeah. Eritrea has the largest let, net immigration rate in the world when you take into account their population. Mm-hmm. They only have a population of 5 million. Not, you know, here's the interesting thing. They don't even let people know their population. Like the DPRK will give the UN. That's cool. That's normal. A full stat of their population. The Eritrea not have the material situation of the DPRK. But they're even more reclusive than them. Like the DPRK, they're not under siege. Any of those Eritrean diaspora activists, don't drink their Kool-Aid, man. Eritrea is the, is the literal epitome of Arab capital in Africa. Gulf Arab capital. I don't want my Palestinian brothers to misinterpret what I say when I mean by that. That's why I had to do that little correction. Right, right, right. Yeah. The Gulf Arab states, they are an imperialist entity. And they get not a lot of attention, you know? They're the reason why the Sudanese revolution never succeeded, by the way. People forget about that. They're also the reason why all these Arab states are normalizing relations with Israel. And like Eritrea, Saudi Arabia and UAE to a larger extent, a large chunk of their labor force is Ethiopian. Lebanon too. I mean, just if you look it up, there's about 500,000 Ethiopian laborers in Lebanon. They make up, I think, at least like 5 to 8% of the population there. There is a massive program of exploitation by the Gulf Arab states and states like Lebanon when it comes to Ethiopian labor. Because Ethiopians are educated to the same quality as, let's say, people in Lebanon or in Syria or Saudi Arabia, etc. But their, you know, their currency, their availability of like even a basic standard of living is borderline non-existent. So they know, they absolutely know that the only way they're going to have an easy life is they go to Saudi Arabia. And what's also pathetic is a disproportionate number of those Ethiopian laborers who are, by the way, in the millions. There's only, there's, all, there's about like 500,000 in Lebanon alone, by the way. Hmm. But in the millions in Saudi Arabia, in UAE, in Dubai, in Oman, etc. Yeah. In Bahrain, especially fucking Bahrain. A disproportionate number of them are women. And a disproportionate number of those women get sex traffic. So there's even a criminal incentive amongst the bourgeois within the Saudi Arabia, within UAE, within uh, Oman, within Bahrain, within all these Gulf Arab monarchies, and even the northern Arab countries to keep Ethiopia unstable. And the early policy of the Arab states was to support Eritrea because Ethiopia, even when it was an ally of the Soviet Union, it was a threat to the Gulf Arab power in Africa. Because we Ethiopians, we supported the South Yemen, which a lot of MLs seem to forget even existed. You know, this, the Marxist-Leninist government, the only Arab, you know, communist state. You know, and that, and that really angered the bourgeois within Mecca, within uh, Saudi Arabia. So ever since then, they've never tolerated a stable Ethiopia. Hmm. 
it's uh it's a really it's a really telling situation you know well i mean that actually makes me wonder if you want to lead it into what you had set out as the third part which is you know the results of this intervention and you said how it affected ethiopia in terms of the moral quality of the nation and internationally yeah when people became more loyal to the ethiopian state they became more willing to basically cut their losses and support Abi. and i'll tell you i'm one of them i hate fucking Abi. i fucking hate that guy but for now i give him my critical support i hope that he understands that if he the dial dam if he can properly profit and build some type of the economic program of like trading the electricity output that is at least a hundred million hundred billion dollars of gdp revenue if he mm-hmm. just does that does what let's say fidel did when he handled the cuban sugarcane industry with the warsaw pact and used those used those uh or cop i think it's either copper or nickel that the cuba has that has like a disproportionate amount compared to the world nationalize it and use it to fund domestic programs. I don't care if he's not a socialist. Just do that. At least be the Putin of Africa. I don't care if you have to like have a bunch of oligarchs. I just don't want Ethiopians to starve and live like right, right. rats, expendable rats that fetch for uh, multinational corporations. You know, I hate reading about Ethiopian textile workers having their hands ripped open because they're trying to make a shirt that's going to be merchandised for $900 and she gets paid 50 cents, you know? Makes me incensed. And I hope that he does what Putin did with electricity and tries to, like, either he can do it through solar power or pull solar plants at the Nile Dam. By the way, the Nile is the fastest running river in the world. That's how profitable it is, the Nile Dam, right now. We're able to give electricity to Ethiopia all of Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somalia, Eritrea, uh, Kenya, Burundi, Rwanda, and even South Sudan. That's how big of a deal the Nile Dam is. That's crazy. That is at least 100 million people. That's how fucking important the Nile Dam is. I had no idea. Yeah. That's all he needs to fucking do. Just do some type of social program. Rhine capitalism at worst. You know? Mm-hmm. Bishmarkian capital. That's it. And then we can talk about the means of production. Like, I just hate these leftoids in America. Duh, Abby's a capitalist. Why should I support him? Yeah. Like, don't you understand? You have to You have to experience capitalism before you even have any of these ideas of revolution or seizing the means of production. Mm. Like, do you, did you ever read about Lenin's NEP? Like, mm-hmm. come on, man. Just get out of here. Get out of here. I have heard like a vague retelling of that. Like that's definitely something I haven't looked into myself, but I've even referenced it on our show before. Like I remember, I don't even know what the context was, but like some, maybe it was one of our Q&A episodes. Like somebody was asking us about something and I like half-assed my way through an answer. And people were like, I do remember hearing something about the theory that you have to progress through capitalism before you can even uh, start talking about, like you said, seizing the means of production. Like it's a necessary step. And like, Exactly. And so let me give you an example. The USSR, in order to build its automobile industry, which it did not have because it was an agrarian country, thanks to the dipshit uh, Tsar, Tsar, uh, Tsar Nicholas, yeah. um, they had to do business with Ford, with Renault, uh, with uh, Peugeot. And um, they bought schematics 
to build like the 4T truck. Like you ever see the famous Katusha trucks that the Red Army used in World War II? You know the the Stalin's organs, the rocket oh, the that, artillery. Because I looked at that other one that you were talking about before. The uh, it was the numbers shit. Oh, the VZ was it? No, you're talking about UA, UAZ, anyway. UAZ. That's the one. Sorry. Yeah, but the Katusha rocket, the famous one that the Soviets use, like the rocket artillery, the truck in which that rocket platform is used is a licensed reproduction of the modeled the Ford Model T truck. Hilarious. Ford actually did business with the USSR and had friendly relations with them in the beginning. But the problem is, Ford never made any capital from it. All the capital went to the people and to the dictatorship of the proletariat. So can you do business with the West as a Marxist? Yes. But you must not allow the capitalist bourgeoisie to capital from your own country. Point. That's why when after the NAP Stalin, he hunted down the kulaks. Because then all of these kulaks were collaborating with foreign bourgeois in taking their capital elsewhere. Right. Just sit down and read history, dude. <laughs> like, oh, China has a BMW factory. Yeah, in five years, they're going to buy it. Dude, they're going to buy it. <laughs> BMW China is owned by the Chinese state. Don't come on, man. Yeah, oh, China's got commodity production. Oh, yeah, like Lenin wrote about how you got to have high-end commodity production similar to high-stage capitalism before progressing to socialism. Exactly. It's like setting a table before a dinner party. You got to make sure everything's in place before you transition to actually sitting down and eat dinner because it fucking sucks to get up in the middle of the fucking thing because you ran out of water or juice. <laughs> yeah, or you had to go to the farm and squeeze the juice out because you're too principled to go to the store and buy it the same place that the capitalist does. But you're using it to feed your family. We have to invent all of our infrastructure and institutions while we're also in the middle of a revolutionary war against other countries. That makes total sense. Yeah. Get down to business. I Go ahead. Um, plug your YouTube channel again. Tell listeners where they can find you to find more of your stuff. All right. So my YouTube channel is R-O-O-T-I-N, Rutin, 4-F-O-R, and then put Lenin. It should be like the first result. It has Mangustu's photo in black and white, and that's uh, my channel. Cool. I've not done anything with it for months. It's crazy. But my most viewed video right now has a 1,000 views. Mm-hmm. And my most recent has 500, so I'm pretty happy about that. That's actually better than any of our podcasts does on YouTube, at least. Like, you know, yeah. pla- that's not mm-hmm. our platform. We're a good podcast in the car at work. That's what we're good for. Yeah, yeah. And nobody's watching the video of just the image. Like, why would you? <laughs> yeah, no. It's weird. Uh, go ahead and plug your Twitter. It's the same thing as your YouTube channel. Yeah, it's the same name. Yeah, we'll, let's do uh, some work posts. Or go ahead and plug your Twitter. Yeah, you can follow me at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. I'm on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. Um, follow the podcast Twitter at Turn Leftist Pod. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, I'm going to pull up the Patreon subscribers on my phone since if I open up Brave Browser, it slows my computer down to a crawl. So. Okay, never mind. I can't even read the Patreon subscribers because... <laughs> I can't do it on my phone. So thank you all to all the new subscribers. We have quite a few new ones, especially since we've been making like several announcements and telling people about our producer and everything and giving people an actual reason to subscribe to us on Patreon and knowing that their money is going to, to some good cause and not just sitting there or, you know, that we're not just like fucking taking it. So yeah, that's it for our plugs as far as I can remember. 
we could probably just plug Cosper's uh, Patreon. Existence is innocent. But yeah, this is fun as always. I mean, again, this is another episode where I'm going to have to listen back to it and take notes again because it's just so many terms and organizations that I'm not familiar with. But no, for sure. Sorry, man. It was awesome. Yeah. Thank you again, man. Yeah, it was great having you. Yeah, have a great night. Yeah, thank you. You too. I'll see you next time.